Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, welcome back to Escape from Plan A. This is Teen and I've got Diana with me. Diana, how are you doing? Can't complain. All right, that's good enough. And uh, returning guest, uh, Emily Dong, how are you? I'm good. Happy to be here. So you've you've been with us before. We did like an episode that was yeah. really well received. Like we received, we got a lot of feedback from people that said they really appreciated it. But it's been a few episodes since the last time we did it. So do you want to just intro yourself a little bit, give a little be- bit of background, and maybe including um, you know organization for positive peace things like that. If you want to plug it, I don't know. Up to you. Yeah, sure. I'm part of. So I'm here based in Philadelphia, and I'm part of um, both the Saturday Free School um, as well as Organization for Positive Peace. And both organizations are grounded in the belief that there is a knowledge that's not really appreciated today, especially of the masses of people, especially the Black masses of people. Um, so it's rooted in the Black radical tradition, and that's something that informs not just our view of America, but also relevant to today's conversation, but it's also relevant to how we view China. Yeah. And the, and, and, I, and I think part of the reason I, uh, I, I, we reached out and was like, and we're like, do you want to do a follow-up episode is because that, f- that first one we did, I think we, I, if I recall, we, we did spend a lot of time talking about black radical politics and I felt like we jumped into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> you know, like it was good. Like people enjoyed that, you know, but I wanted to uh, cover some ground, like maybe the shallow end of that pool. Like, like how do we lead ourselves back into the conversation maybe that we first, that we first had. And uh, what I wanted to start off with, like just sort of like to like, like a, as a starting point, right. Uh, is just a, Teen, are you, are you saying that people didn't really understand what we were talking about? No, 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 no. I, no, I don't think anyone said that. But I do uh-huh. think that it, it's possible. <laughs> and uh, to that, I think like, you know, I, I think we, well, for, for my purposes, I think we we talked about things that may not really, in a way that maybe makes sense when you listen to it, but it may not stick as well as if we start with like more basic premise. Does that make sense? Um, oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... What I wanted to cover really was like, as a Chinese American, this sort of like gnawing sensation that there is a difference uh, or there's a sort of contradiction that I'm having to live with these days. One, you know, the starting point for me is that, you know, we still live in a nominally anti-racist liberal society. I mean, I mean, I'll caveat that every which way, but I will say that, you know, like in general terms, there is, uh, you know, I would say a fairly dominant culture of sort of liberal anti-racism that although it doesn't really, you know, obviously it's, it's, it, you can, you can criticize it for, for being, um, you know, fairly shallow, uh, and, and non-committal. But I do think it is important to note that like anti-Asian racism as such, is frowned upon. <laughs> okay, that's as strong a word as I'll give it is frowned upon. And, uh, you know, even a Trump, for example, would deny that he's being racist against Asians and that Asian Americans are some of the greatest people, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you can't be openly racist against Asian people. Now, people are and there's you know, hate crimes going on all the time. And, 
generally nasty shit said about Asians, but there is a, in my, my sense, a sort of like, there's ground to stand on here in America to be like, look, we've got to fight against anti-Asian racism. It's unacceptable. Uh, but the contradiction for me is how xenophobia and a specific sort of demonization of a nexus of concepts related to China, whether it's the, you know, the Communist Party of China or whether it's the Chinese government or China as a country or Chinese people, but the whole complex of associated notions of the Sinosphere, that is not, I think there is a sort of like accepted stance that we are in a kind of conflict with that, that China represents a threat, that China is worse than the United States, that China is to be feared and to be contained you know, and to be, and to put, and, and to be changed forcefully if need be. And that to me is a big contradiction that's hard to, uh, reconcile. So I wanted to talk about that. I, we've spent a lot of time talking on pods about anti-Asian racism. And we've talked about the connection between xenophobia and anti-Asian racism. And I think that's all true, but I want to talk specifically about xenophobia without the anti-Asian racism part. Does that make sense? Like I want to just, I want to focus on the, the social pressure, the political pressure that's coming from everywhere now, both liberal and conservative, both far right and far left, uh, in my opinion, to antagonize, demonize and fear China. And that, 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 w- that was where I kind of wanted to start because I think like too much of the time we're talking about the larger concept of anti-Asian racism generally and we're not, we're not looking at this particular contradiction. Yeah, can um, you clarify this contradiction for me? I think I'm not completely getting it. Like, because when you talk mm-hmm. about, like, when you say, I want to talk about xenophobia without having to talk about anti-racism, I kind of know what you're trying to say, but I think there's I think there's a I think I am seeing a diff. I think I know there's a contradiction, but I'm seeing a different contradiction. And I think if you want to talk about why there's xenophobia, especially in the most illogical sense, which is why are like Chinese Americans, for example, people young like Chinese Americans, why are they xenophobic? Even though you think they should be the most feel the most kinship with China, be the most defensive. I think that's a different contradiction than maybe what you're talking about. But can you clarify what contradiction you're seeing? Well, well no, go into it. I, I don't have much of – I want to get into it just because I don't really know that – I'm not sure I really have the character of that contradiction down or – but I just know that as a subjective experience living in America now that it just feels like there's something at odds here where, you know, for example, I see Asian Americans – railing against the racism uh like for example like let's take let's take a border case let's take the use of the word kung flu right uh or the phrase kung flu like we know that's racist against asians and the media has been pushing that i you know that concept like wow trump is so racist and saying kung flu liberals will say saying kung flu will uh uh, engender or 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 normalize anti-asian racism right but if you were to mediate that, uh, 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 to change that a little bit from Kung flu to something a little less racist like China virus, China virus is a little bit more of an edge case. And I've noticed that, for example, like China virus, the media came around to the idea that China virus is also a racist term to an extent. But 
that's the term that, for example, the New York Times was using, you know, before the WHO came out and said, okay, you, you know, generally speaking, it's not appropriate to name a virus for after the, the country from which it was first detected, right? So what I'm saying is that um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making my case very well here, but what I'm saying is that we, we will take the sort of like superficially racist notions around some of the xenophobic stuff that's going on, like Kung flu, and say, could you use the appropriate name for it, right? But there isn't uh, a deeper uh, challenging of the notion that China is at fault here or that, you know, China gave us the coronavirus and it was something that we should blame China for. Like, what I'm saying is like in America, we will fight tooth and nail against the notion of the word Kung flu or the phrase Kung flu because it's racist. But on the other hand, I've noticed like none of that goes towards challenging, you know, what I think is a. So, Teen, mm-hmm. I, I feel like there are kind of two um, kind of parallel concepts of xenophobia that we're talking about mm-hmm. that we're, we we might be using them interchangeably but i yeah. see them as uh distinct and one is kind of an identity based xenophobia and that's more similar to anti asian racism right and that's kind of what the kind of like liberal like like liberals liberal americans will actually be be willing to fight against it's like okay this the kung flu it is racist to chinese people and culture and their uh their humanity as people you know it's it's racist to the chinese identity and it's racist um it's similar to anti-asian racism you know it 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 makes anti-asian racism worse so that's something that the liberals will actually fight against and that's something that is um it goes against our conception of ourselves as americans that we would allow this to happen which is why even trump will say okay like we can't we can't be racist you know and then the second um xenophobia is one that's actually like a political ideology it's actually a policy you know of um containing or um actively uh fighting china china the political entity china the nation state you know and that's something that is we don't really even have a framework for thinking about that because it's like it's you know it's um it's racism. Of course it is. It's yellow peril. But at the same time, it's, uh, you can argue that it's, um, just like what, what governments do. You know, it's like self protection, national security. It's a national security issue. Right. And I think this is something that was like very similar. What was going on to, uh, Islamophobia and like, um, um, how, you know, like we can't be Islamophobic, but we can still have, Guantanamo Bay open well into the Obama administration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I am I am in a way intentionally using contradictory terms here because that to me is the contradiction, right? I agree. I think about like it's right. Okay. No, I, I, I'm saying that like I think we just need to need to have that dual understanding of the definition of xenophobia just in the discussion that we're having now because I guess it's more just like how do we understand this duality? Like because it's clear that this there is a duality and that's what's causing a lot of contradiction and that's what's 
that's that's a problem. That's the needle we're trying to thread, right? In talking about this, even is just like how does one affect the other, and uh, what do we do about both of them? Because they're both bad, but in different ways. And I think to Emily's point, when she was saying that you know Asian Americans will be sinophobic, including Chinese Americans, you know, like are they thinking about? Like, do they understand what sinophobia is and how policy-based sinophobia leads into the identity-based sinophobia that affects them and other Asians? Yeah, I I think this, see, we're going to end up back into this, into the discussion that we had in the first episode, because these are such big questions. I think about, for example, was it Cedric Robinson's notion of black Marxism? He was, he was, he was kind of addressing i think something that we're approaching now which is does is uh racism you know a product of some say economic or political necessity like was anti-black racism invented for uh the purpose of you know supplying a needed slave labor force for you know you know pre for 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 the south right like was that was that an invention of necessity or, and I think this was the argument that Robinson was making, was racism actually already sort of in existence and like capitalist forms were created around that existing notion of racism. And I think that's kind of what I'm, I think these, the contradiction that I'm getting at is a similar question. So for example, like let's take the two ideas that you're talking about now. There's this sort of like sinophobia that is a sort of, you know, sort of like a, a spot, like a sort of spontaneous racism. The, 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 the sort of like dirty Chinese or, 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 you know, them and their in, in unintelligible language or habits or whatever. And then there's this sort of, you're saying like this geopolitical racism or, or antagonism to China that's built around, you know, you know, notions of a unipolar versus multipolar world. Does America share power, whatever? And I think it's a hard distinction to make because I still don't know whether those two are totally separate. I think about two things. One is the Kieran Skinner. If you remember, she was uh, at the State Department. She headed up the biggest think policy think tank within the State Department itself. Um, very influential figure. She's a black woman. I think that's important to note here. She was making the point that part of the reason this part of the reason China represents such a threat uh, to America is because it's a peer competitor. We've had peer competitors in the past, but this is the first non-Caucasian peer, peer competitor, she said. And she said that that was relevant. Uh, a lot of people hated her for saying that, but I, I, I respected it because she was speaking from the perspective of being one of the few black women in um, a, 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 a policy com- community that she said was dominated by white men. And she said specifically because uh, the U.S., policy committees so does not reflect the diversity of America itself that it was leading necessarily to more, you know, a, a worse and more antagonistic response than might have been the case against, say, the Soviet Union, where they, where they were seen as, you know, potential Westerners. 
if we just got, you know, if they just had the right idea about things, right? Like we could convert the Soviets into Westerners. I wonder, and I guess my whole thing about coming in through the shallow end versus the deep end is all bullshit now. But like, I want, that's my question <laughs> is, 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 are, are we, are we, is Sinophobia really, uh, you know, just a unfortunate byproduct of like power, you know, these sort of like mechanistic power, uh, power dynamics? Or is racism still existing at that level? You know, the other thing is like there was this video and I'll link this. uh, I'll link all this stuff in the show notes. There was a video of a white woman, white American woman who was at a QA and a with um, uh, Yanis Varoufakis. And, you know, the leftist, uh, I guess, le- sort of anti-capitalist economist in um, Europe. And she was complaining about the sort of neo-colonialism, the debt colon- the debt-fueled colonialism that China was engaging in, which in her opinion was a mirror of what America does, but it's worse because it's the Chinese. And she said, you know, and he was kind of like, I, what, what, what's the point you're trying to make here? And she said, God, they're, they're going around to Africa. They're building ports, you know. And he said, good, we need ports. We need ports. There's nothing wrong with this. And she, you know, I think she got into this point where she was flustered because what she really wanted to say was, yes, but they're Chinese, right? The problem with this is that they're Chinese. That can't, that's not acceptable, right? So you have these sort of like high mind, you know, these, and you know, who goes to a Varoufakis Q&A? It's like pretty smart, educated people that are thinking about global issues and stuff like this. You know, I don't think she's the type around that, you know, would, would, would go around just yelling, you know, chinks put pee pee in my coke or whatever. But <laughs> at the other hand, she gets, you know, if you push the issue a little bit, I think it still comes down to this notion that they're Chinese. This is not acceptable. I don't know where that my whole rant about this just leaves us now in terms of like, where do we go from here? But this is my point is that, yeah, Diana, I agree that there's two forms of sinophobia. But in in my in my belief, I think they're a little bit more related. You know, there 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 yeah, still I, is I, just the mm-hmm. yeah, they're definitely related. I just I think that um, people don't understand there being two forms, and therefore they don't understand that it is related. Mm. Well, I think in all of this, us through having a conversation about sinophobia, it's because like we're here and thinking about but I feel like ultimately it's also important to know the purpose of having these conversations like why we're even talking about this because if you're someone who's worried about what we're calling sinophobia like let's just say I'm just going to describe it as like people people keep talking about this whole new cold war between the U.S. and China the fact that the U.S. and the West as a whole in terms of economics on a world scale it's not the same as it was after World War II like it's not the same dominance it's not the same not the same ability to just dominate world markets dictate everything you have a new rising power that has its allies as well um people have like especially people i feel like in this pro china community that you see online everywhere people are talking about how there's going to be a new cold war everyone is starting to like be so passionate about their side like i'm pro china i'm anti china whatever you want to call it but i think if you're worried like i feel like we're talking about we're even like having this conversation on a saturday about sinophobia because you have to be worried about how that will affect the world. And I think that's the thing. Like, you can't just talk about... I feel like it's easy to become a conversation about, like, people hate Chinese people or people don't like China. But it's also like, 
it's not just that it's China, it's not just that it's Chinese, but if you ever want the possibility of a world of peace, a world where people are like collaborating, cooperating, working together, you can't have this, like you're going to need to teach people, especially like, let's take the example of Chinese Americans again, like Chinese Americans should not only just, should not, on, like our focus may be they should not only not be xenophobic, but they also have to be able to look at their own country, like and look at America and see like why America is doing what it's doing. Like you can't just look and say like I don't like how America's treating China. You have to also be able to say I don't like the way America's treating black people. I don't like the way I don't like the way America treats poor people. I don't like that this country, which has had the most wealth in the whole world for so many years, why is there still poverty in this country? Like why does it not decrease by more than one percent every year? And I think that's that's what I feel like my issue becomes like increasing now what I feel like really passionate about is no longer just the way people look at China and think like China is this China is that but I'm actually becoming more concerned at like whether it's liberals whether it's people who believe they're worldly people who are concerned about the world like I want them to not just be focused on how people are treating China right now I want people to also be focused on the bigger picture which is which is like what about like what do we want the world to look like and that that also make that requires you to know what America is before you even know what China is like how can you even see how America is treating China if you can't really see how America has raised you and treated you no that's a that's a really good point because I think that um, once we I think that how the US treats China it's um it's it's exactly how it treats every every other minority group you know like it, it's it's another angle to how black people are treated in the US and i think that it um seeing how black people in the tre- in the US are treated is also reflective of how um violent the US can get and has gotten in the past toward you know like other asian countries and china and like if i want to if i'm if i'm being honest and thinking of about the future of the world my concern with um xenophobia uh from like globally but especially with the u.s is that unlike the cold war with um the soviet union which is a white quote-unquote quote-unquote white civilization um i my my concern is that the u.s is not going to um be as careful about pushing that nuke button against China as it was against um, against the Soviets. Yeah, well, I don't. I mean, I don't really see the Soviet Union. Like, it's interesting that you're saying it's a quote unquote white civili- civilization because, yeah, in some ways, phenotyp like in phenotypically they are um, like in terms of features they they look white and stuff. But I think this okay. This actually gets into a deeper question, kind of what we're talking about because the Soviet Union, in terms of principles and what the whole state is built on is the promise of freedom and equality for once where you have workers in charge of the whole state and and I think I think that gets what you're saying about like the way America treated the Soviet Union how you can kind of see similarity you can see how America's treating China there's it's because both of them both of them are presenting an alternative to what be, what we've been used to for like centuries except now we don't even have a Soviet Union and like there is a rising Asia and there's there's a challenge to there's a challenge to a way of like, not just a way of running the world, but also a way of people living that there's an alternative being presented. But I think, I mean, back to my earlier point, I think I was also bringing up that I actually kind of forget my point. 
<laughs> I, 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 no, your earlier point, I think, goes really to the heart of what I'm trying to say here. Um, and I should make my point clearer because uh, I, I kind of like, you know, a lot of times... Uh, it, it sounds like, it can sound like, and, and there is a segment of Pro China Twitter that is this way, that this is, you know, really about, um, you know, addressing the, the sort of like injuries and indignities that, you know, you see, uh, oh, like, Okay, something. Someone says something xenophobic online that that's an insult to China, and th- and therefore China is owed an apology or something like that because it's been injured. You know, it's funny because I, I it's it's specifically because China is a strong country, a big boy now. It's a grown up. It's a it's a superpower in its own right. I I as a Chinese American, I'm not concerned about China, and I don't think China needs my concern. Right? It is exactly as you say, and I think the the problem is. The role that sign of that China and specifically the sinophobia that's created around our image and idea of China is specifically designed to prevent us from asking the questions you just said we need to ask. That's my issue with it ultimately is specifically the idea that, and I think this is the how yellow peril functions is that the only standard by which, you know, the US should be held to is the imaginary standard of you know the 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 evil oriental that would replace us like you think we're bad okay well then try china i think that's the sort of imperial logic of yellow peril and why i as an american find sinophobia to be so dangerous uh, is the same reason that McCarthyism was dangerous. It's a new form of McCarthyism. And, you know, when we talk about McCarthyism, we don't really think of it as, oh, that was so unfair to the Russians or to the Soviets. It was a, it was a, it was a d- severe dysfunction within, uh, you know, within America itself that, you know, kept us locked into a sort of paranoid. They call it the paranoid style. Like we became super paranoid. We uh, looked upon any sort of change, any sort of progressive movement, uh, any sort of challenge to the status quo with suspicion that it was, you know, underneath that uh, call for change was, you know, a Soviet agent, you know, and I and I'm seeing that happening again in the US and this time it's a Chinese agent you know, underneath all of these uh, things. Also a Russian agent. They're saying that shit too, um, which is a whole other discussion. But um, Emily, I think that's what I'm trying to get. I think you said what, what you said saying like, you know, what you're really concerned about is how do we challenge America? How do we challenge like, you know, the, the, just the crazy ideologies that are being passed around, like that have been in play for so long in America. How do we really challenge that? I think xenophobia and fear of China is a way to lock it in, to, to seal in the juices. You know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> Wait, no, I, I don't describe that more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is a cooking, a cooking. how do we how do we brown america (laughs) yeah i mean a very simple example was uh you know how america didn't want to join the tokyo climate accords right for the longest time and we still not we're still not part of the climate accords we we got out of paris but for the longest time the u.s uh despite the rest of the world which we purported to be the leader of right leader of the free world Despite all of, you know, the free world, so to speak, saying, look, we need to do something about climate. And this was like the like 90s or aughts, right? When they were proposing this, the U.S. said, no, we're not going to do it because it doesn't mean anything unless China joins, right? 
Meaning like the standard by which the US will conduct itself is the standard of its closest com- peer competitor, which is China. And until China joins the accord, it's a meaningless accord. So we're not going to do it. And for decades, that seemed like a reasonable thing. Like, okay, well, that's true. China is a huge economy and they do pollute a lot on a gross, at a gross level, not on a per capita level. But then uh, in, I believe it was 2015, during the G20, China announced that it had uh, ratified uh, the Paris Accord before the before Americans had. So we no longer had that excuse. And what was the result? The result was we're still not part of the Paris Accords. You know, the, the, it revealed that the whole time the US didn't want to do it. We don't want to do it because we're the top polluter in the world and we don't want to change anything about ourselves. But we were using China as an excuse. And when that excuse went away, we still didn't change our behavior. So it kind of revealed itself to be, you know, the US sort of relying on China as an excuse to not do anything. Does that make sense? Uh, I don't know if, 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 if this is relevant at all to how you all are thinking about it, but I guess my point that, is. Yeah, uh-huh, that, uh-huh. that totally makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's just, um, like they're using China as this, um, this external threat, um, to act, to justify their, their position as just being recalcitrant to change. But like, that's not the issue. China is not the issue. It's their own issue with, um, wanting to be the best, wanting to cling to this exceptionalism that's not even real anymore, if it ever was. Um, and ultimately, it's gonna it's gonna be detrimental to the U.S. more than anything else, is what you're saying. Is that is that right? It's detrimental to the U.S. depending on what your position is politically here, and I, I would say that for people who are were environmentalists that fear of China was a real, has been a real problem for them, mm-hmm. right? Because I think uh, it allowed the US to drag its feet for decades. And now it seems like it might be too late. But the whole time, I mean, if you go back and look at, you know, what was being said, it was because China isn't part of the, these discussions. So we're not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then once that excuse was taken away, because China actually ratified it. And, oh, you know, and, and it was funny because Obama had sort of, you could see like Obama was kind of bullshitting. And mm-hmm. he announced within like, you know, 24 hours of the Chinese surprising the U.S. with that, that the U.S. had also ratified it. It didn't. We didn't. It was a, mm-hmm. the president had said, OK, we are going to abide by this. But he didn't ever get congressional uh, approval of the treaty as any sort of binding treaty. And then so Trump just went ahead and said, no, we're not part of it anymore. And it showed, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a perfect example, I think, of how, uh, you know, we create, I think, a racist image of this yellow peril competitor that excuse it, like everything that we criticize China for, like there's so many things we could criticize China for, right? Like, we criticize China for stuff that we are most guilty of. And it's weird because it, it brings up this, this immediate criticism of, well, that's hypocritical. How could the US, after having waged endless war in the Middle East, now turn around and be like, oh, we're super concerned about the rights of Muslims in Xinjiang <laughs> province? It's weird that we would pick that, right? Mm-hmm. Or like the sovereignty of Hong Kong, uh, whereas the US has like how many, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, uh, you know, 
fuck the people of Okinawa and their demand to not have a U.S. base sitting there or Puerto Rico or all this. Like everything that we choose to criticize uh, China on seems to be something we're guilty of. But then the stuff that we have a valid criticism for, we don't say anything like like now we're like, you know what? I think we, we think the Chinese might be right when it comes to Internet censorship. Right. Like we're, we're actually adopting a lot of that stuff now. We've been pretty quiet about the Internet censorship stuff now that we want to engage in it ourselves. And uh, my point being that um, it just seems to me that, you know, everything we everything wrong that we want to do, everything bad that we want to do, the, the way we justify it is to say, well, the Chinese are even more guilty than us. So yeah, we may be imperfect, but the Chinese are even worse. And that is the pattern that I'm seeing a lot. And I find that in the larger discussion uh, about, you know, how do we... What, what about the US? What about the shit that we do? What about the injustice in America? What about the fact that we're the largest ethno gulag in history? We have more people, we are 5% of the population, 25% of the world's prisoner population with a extreme bias towards non-white people, particularly black people. Yeah. Uh, all this stuff. How do we so, address okay. that? Mm. I, I think, but like, I do think that like, I, I'm, I am still scared for China and the rest of the world though, because, because of all the nukes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah i so mean i was just so. like because do you remember that uh that comic that you showed me a while ago of the caveman who uh sees this bird flying and he tr- like oh the far his- side yeah yeah and he yeah. flaps his arms and he can't fly and he's like grumpy about it and then he leaves and then in the next in the next panel he has this uh arrow um you know this like bow and arrow and he just shoots the bird out of the sky Right. And, and he's satisfied with that, right? Yeah. 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 Like that's, I feel like that's what the US is like and China's the bird, right? And so they just like, they don't care about bettering the world. They just are in this like um, capitalist competition where as long as I'm better than the next guy, uh, I'm, I won. It's, it's a, it's a very like a uh, toxic perspective this is like a toxic masculine thing you it's, know? Al- it's uh, america as uh, alpha chad yeah so yeah. basically like they don't care what the environment is gonna they don't care about global warming they don't care about the betterment of humanity they just want to fucking win and if they have that mental image of them as the winners then uh they like nothing changes but as soon as they realize that the other person is ahead they're gonna push the nuke button and like it doesn't matter what else happens they just want the person who's ahead they just, to die and they'll be satisfied with that well i think that's that's, that's yeah i mean Sorry. i want to bring this to something that teen was saying earlier which is like okay how do you challenge america then and i mean it's completely related to our question from the last time too which is what is the role of asian americans now and i mean even the theme of this podcast us saying like what do you do about sinophobia i feel like the real question is not just how do you avoid a new cold war but it's also how do you challenge america how do you challenge imperialism what do you what are we going to do specifically us asian americans what is our role going to do when we are at the belly of the beast like we are in america we have both a responsibility to america americans 
but also I mean to the world because we are part of this country and like we have that unique position of being here. Like how do we avoid America being able to like do what you're describing, Diana, which is like shoot mm-hmm. birds out of the sky. And I feel like and I feel like that is the question we do have to like focus on and think about and like talk about right now. Um and I think I think the reason why we talk so much about what we were calling the black radical tradition last podcast and you know like what what teens describing like in this podcast related is like black marxism and stuff is i think you do have to go to the you do have to go and like first learn from and be inspired by and see yourself as part of the legacy like some of the only revolutionary movements that ever really challenged american imperialism which would be the freedom movement led by king in the 60s like that is probably the last great example for us um king had this speech where he talked about he was like this isn't just about racism this is a triple about the triple evils which are all intertwined you have racism you have militarism and you have poverty and yeah i think and i think that's why like we do especially us i feel like we see a lot of conversations online especially in the time of this pandemic of people bringing up over and over again about like how the New York Times is talking about China that like there's a lot of xenophobia but it reaches a point where we're like okay yes like we do not like the way what seems to be an amplifying cold war and then also there are questions of like man like in America itself like it seems like unemployment is not getting better at all it's getting worse like can you imagine like all across this country so many people don't have jobs so many people don't even know when they'll have a job it's like much worse than the 60s in some ways when people felt at least like maybe I can get a job in this factory maybe I can get a job in like this place maybe like you feel like you have at least somewhere you can go to get a job but in this day and age like there's just so much poverty so much homelessness I mean it's all masked by glittery media it's masked by like imaginary money in the stock market all this stuff so I feel like it reaches the question where like you have all all these people we know and just a lot of young people in particular who are asking like what do we do how do we avoid a war like how do we build a better world? And I think it comes to the question of unity. Back to Asian Americans specifically, you have so many Asian Americans who are, you know, in conversation about xenophobia. I feel like there are actually a lot of Asian Americans who maybe do like feel a growing consciousness of like, I don't, I feel like the way there's a contradiction of the US, which is not a democracy, crit- criticizing China on how it's raising its own people. I think the question becomes, okay, Asian Americans, like, how are you going to build unity in America then? How are you going to build a movement that is similar to what we had in the 60s that can actually challenge imperialism, that actually has a chance of freeing humanity, like freeing America for the better and also freeing humanity? And I think, I mean, in some ways, it's we can be really inspired by what was happening with the anti-Vietnam War movement, which was like fundamentally and critically tied to the civil rights movement, the Black Freedom Movement. And I think there's a lot in there still, like this question of, okay, how do you build unity? Who are you building unity with? I think it has to be, it has to be with, it has to be with the black community. And I think if you're serious about challenging xenophobia, if you're serious about building a better world, if you're serious about challenging America and American imperialism, then you do have to go back to the 60s. You do have to learn from that. You need to really feel in your heart that you're being inspired by that. And you have to also, in terms of ideas and ideas and a framework of how you should be thinking and acting, who you should be building alliances with and see yourself in this with, like who 
is the enemy. Like you can't answer any of those questions and be able to have that clarity unless you go back there, unless you read, unless you study. Um, and that's like, I mean, that's what I'm, that's the point at which I'm at with a lot of people who are talking about sinophobia today. Like, I think it's time. It's time. Like we start talking about, okay, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to build unity then? Who are we going to build it with? What kind of, like, what kind of movement do you see yourself as continuing? I agree with all of that. I mean, I think I think the thing that bridges sinophobia with black radicalism in a way is the sort of like a change in the way we think, right? Like, I think that there's a danger where when we have these discussions about anti-Asian racism or sinophobia, that we're talking from the perspective of protecting our feelings and protecting our uh, honor. And, you know, and I think that that can shade into... You know, a lot of people online are accused of being like Wu Mao, right? Like being these Chinese nationalists or whatever. And I'm not going to dismiss that there is an element of that sometimes. That what this is about is just China and me as a Chinese person. That's all that matters. Right. And I'll, t- you know, and I think that the, you know, I'd like to invert that a little bit because I think what people, I think people are misled into that. Right. I think there's, they're, they're really seeing something else, but they get misled into that. And maybe we should clarify. And I think there needs to be more clarification as to what's going on. The reason that I think the, the, the connection between Sinophobia and black radicalism is I think both China and black radicals do represent a major challenge to American hegemony that's premised on white supremacy. And I think China, for the most part, and I'll put it this way, I think China, for the most part, presents a material challenge to that. And 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 not yet, and it, this, is my, this is what I see, I don't think it quite yet poses a, a moral challenge to it. But black radicalism, I think, poses not a material challenge by any stretch of the means. And I think when you talk to people when you talk to people that 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 are sort of involved in black movements now, they fully acknowledge. Like I was listening to like this live stream yesterday, where they're just like, "Look, how thirteen percent of the population? What could we possibly do? We've got to we've got to think about this, right?" There isn't a material challenge to American hegemony and white supremacy, but there is a very strong moral challenge to it, and so. To bring the two together would be a very dangerous thing. And I think that's why you've been hearing Chinese diplomats saying Black Lives Matter, right? I think there's an understanding that there's a – together, that would be a very, very – dangerous thing i mean uh, yeah like that's that's a really really fundamental um connection to make weren't you the one saying that you know after you went to china last year you were like the chinese government should be doing everything in its power to support black people in america and to just like be promoting you know like black american voices and like making movies about black americans and stuff that would be a major challenge that would be like much better than the bullshit you know, like the yeah. Meg stuff, you know, like, these, I, I like was, Hollywood I, collaborations that they're doing now. I was saying that if the, I didn't say that they have to, I was saying that if the Chinese really want to stick it to the Americans, yeah, I wasn't I advocating mean, for it, but I, you know, okay, go fund yeah. black filmmakers. Yeah. yeah you don't yeah, have yeah. to pr- have a Chinese person come up with like an anti-American thing. Go, mm-hmm. you know, go fund a black filmmaker and make, you know, a proper movie about Fred Hampton or something. Not, not, yeah. not, not one coming out of uh, Hollywood. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I mean, yeah. even in the, 60s and 70s with the radical movements then i think the biggest threat was when um black american radicals recognized imperialism in vietnam and in asia as a legitimate concern for uh americans for black americans 
And when, you know, like Ho Chi Minh and other um, Asian revolutionaries were also trying to connect and support the Black radical movement in America, like that was that was probably the biggest threat to American hegemony in, you know, in the past 400 years. And that is why, like, there's so much media about, you know, this like, like Black anti-Asian or Asian anti-Black conflict is to... Is, is for them to try to break that up, up as much as possible. Yeah, I think, I think bringing up that movement again, I feel like one of the greatest challenges that could happen is, is in the same vein as when Baldwin, he was talking about, James Baldwin was talking about what was happening in Vietnam, like all the terrible bombings, America having the arrogance and gall to go over there, drafting poor people, black people to go and fight a rich man's war that has no reason to be in Vietnam, burning innocent children. Like, can you, like, it just... How can, like, you know, it just is so visceral to remember how horrible war is there and, like, what happened in Vietnam. And James Baldwin, he says, you know, he is hated in his own country, despite the fact that Black people have made this country. And he says, he says, like, every bombed village in Vietnam is my hometown. Like, that's deep. And I feel like that is a type of unity that we, like, have to build. Like, I think that is the greatest threat to imperialism. And I, I think he even says, he says in one of his, he says in his essay, Fifth Avenue Uptown, he ends by saying, he says, it is a terrible and inexorable law that one cannot deny the humanity of another without diminishing one's own. In the face of one's victim, one sees oneself. Walk through the streets of Harlem and see what we, this nation, have become. And if he's saying every bombed village in Vietnam is my hometown, I think we, like, we both as, like, anyone in America, any person, but also us as Asian Americans have to look, do exactly what he's saying. Like, you have to see that this nation is Harlem. If you're going to allow, like, poverty, the ghettos you see in Harlem to exist and not care, and for that not to be, like, the ultimate guiding force of what you want, what you think should change in America, how to make things better for which people, and thus, like, all people, you have to look at Harlem, like, you can't see any other America. I feel like it's all interconnected. I think that's the greatest threat. That's the unity I'm talking about. And I think that's the greatest threat to imperialism. It's not just yeah. yourself. I, I, I t- yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I guess my question is, um, like, we know this, but so does the CIA, you know? And, like, I, I feel like the past... 40 years or so um, has just been the co-optation of every one of these radical movements in the U.S. and abroad to um, create and, and like popular culture has been created to basically like um, make us either forget or just like not be aware of of any of this commodify a lot of this stuff yeah but i'm saying like the unity is not there now for a reason and like how do we as asian americans like individually fight that Do, do you think that maybe that's why in a way the u.s is becoming so mccarthyist where you know it's it's maybe not just hysteria but it's also sort of like looking for you know looking into the future and seeing the potential uh danger of that like yeah, like, let, let, totally. let's take let's take Baldwin for as an example, right? Like, I I've heard a lot of criticisms by, and I think black radicalism is interesting because in a way, both you know, say take the the Chinese now, uh, and then take black radicals, they both seem to like crave what the other has because it doesn't have it, and I think Baldwin uh has recently been sort of criticized by uh, black radicals for 
in the end, still being sort of like writing about white salvation, right? He was the white salvation guy. And I think part of it was because Baldwin, uh, and I think this is a lot of problem that black radicals have these days, is like he was still talking in moral terms, right? He was still making a moral case. And I think the black radical now is like, I'm tired of making the moral case. The moral case has been made. If you're making a moral case, who are you trying to uh, convince? Right, you're you're trying to convince white people to an extent, and I think the criticism of Baldwin that I've heard, even though I think Baldwin's a fantastic right, I'm not trying to criticize, but but I'm saying the criticism was, you know, if you look at the way we're supposed to look at the history of black radicalism, it has often been the sort of marginalization of more quote militant people like Kwame Ture in the way. Uh, you know, um, like Bill Clinton, uh, you know, uh, recently uh, at the at the at the um, uh, funeral of John Lewis had said, oh, you know, for a few years, you know, we were really going towards the direction of someone like Kwame, but John Lewis won the day. It is this sort of saying like, look, your movement is a moral movement. You're the conscience of America. We value and respect the morality and subjective understanding of American guilt. We, we value that. But you may never present a material, uh, you know, an actual challenge to our power over you, meaning you cannot get militant. You cannot talk about arming yourselves. You can't talk about self-segregation, creation of your own, you know, economic system, uh, things like that. And you certainly cannot go out and start visiting foreign countries, inviting them to invest in you and, 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 and backing you up. You can never talk about a material, concrete step in the direction of your own liberation. You can only talk about it in terms of moral, making a moral case, whatever. But you look at the Chinese now, and they have all of that, right? They, in terms of like pushing out uh, and resisting, uh, you know, Western dominance and imperialism, uh, they have they have all of the weapons. They have a, the economy. They have the people. They have the power. They have all of the makings of a country that can say "fuck you," uh, get out of my. Uh, you know, you're going to leave this area. This is my area. Fuck you. I've got missiles. I've got tanks. I've got all that stuff, but. They can't make the moral case, you know, and I think that frustrates the hell out of the Chinese in a way because it's like they believe they have a moral case. They believe history has given them a moral case, but for some reason, they can't tap into it in a way that other people will find legitimate. Wait, and, why do you know, they? Why do they not have the moral case? Yeah, because I think people fear them for having power because of xenophobia. Because of xenophobia, yeah, and, and and also just the general because of xenophobia and just the general sense of. They're, they're a big, powerful country. Why, why should they have a moral case? Fuck them, you know? Um, but yeah, also for sure, uh, because of, because of xenophobia, we don't want the Chinese building ports. They're building ports, you know? And, I mean, I- <laughs> <laughs> they're building well, ports and railroads. That's awful, you know? They're Chinese made. That's that so ridiculous, though, because they were actually helping African countries. A long, uh, move towards self-determination. But that's my point is like, you see, the second we start talking about that, the second that the Chinese are actually building ports and railroads and stuff, right? They're actually mm-hmm. doing it. But the frustrating part of Sinophobia is that you can't make that out to be a moral thing. You can't make that out to be a good thing. But why not? They can just say, we're helping these African nations move towards self-determination and mm-hmm. away from reliance on Western NGOs. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. a moral case. So no, 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 I'm not I'm not saying that they're they're not able to do it or that they shouldn't do it. I'm saying that th- what's frustrating them now is 
the way that I think, you know, um, the, the US in particular, I think it's more guilty than any other part of the quote Western world has narrowed, has really honed in on frustrating the Chinese and making a moral case about what they're doing. Oh, Whereas, do you, mean, you mean like um, how any kind of positive, uh, positive interpretation gets completely um, twisted by the white media, by the American yeah, yeah, media. They're constantly like, undercutting everything that the Chinese do as yeah, some sort of like, like, like when they when they donated all those masks to every single country, you know, that asked for them uh-huh. and sent doctors to England, to Italy, and everything. Oh, wait, wait, they, wait, wait, wait till they have a vaccine. It's gonna be nuts. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna be like, if you use their, the Chinese vaccine, you can't have the American vaccine. Like yeah. we're gonna it's gonna be like that. Yeah. Yeah. I and, see what and, you're and they'll saying. call it vaccine diplomacy. They'll be like, oh, the Chinese are cynically using the vaccine mm-hmm. development in order to, you know, uh, advance its own imperial interests and all this stuff. Yeah. What I'm saying is that the, you know, I'm, I'm saying this in that, in, in just to understand, maybe to frame for myself how I understand what's going on is when it comes to black radicalism uh which is the true is the only true antagonism to white supremacy in america it's the only true antagonism to capitalism in america too. into you imperialism know, in america you know it, what uh-huh. i think that black radicalism is the only um is the only true counter to mental colonization yeah I that too. too yeah absolutely uh it, it's the only place that hasn't been mentally colonized right mm-hmm. and and i think for example let's take a quote threat to the you know the american system of capitalism that was quote bernie sanders like everyone was like oh bernie's wo- way too dangerous he wants to take on the uh, he wants to take on the billionaires and he wants to take on the pharma company well he wasn't really that dangerous because you can measure that by how the establishment responded to him they pulled a few le- levers at the dnc you know, they 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 uh, organized uh, an electoral strategy to get Biden to win after South Carolina, and Bernie folded and then turned around and 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 uh, uh, endorsed Biden. Yeah. Bernie was never really a threat. The white left, the working, you know, the sort of like union left, uh, was never really a threat. Uh, they can be easily co-opted, right? I think we like to say they're a threat in order to sort of set the most leftmost boundary of acceptable political discourse. But if you look at how we responded to Bernie, he wasn't much of a threat and he proved to be a paper tiger and he just turned around and said, okay, I'll try my best to deliver my votes to Biden then. Okay. But if you look at what happened after Minneapolis in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd, that brought out boots on the ground. That brought out an out of control, violent suppression of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter if you were black. It didn't matter. There were Asian protesters, white protesters, Latino, you know, everyone was out and it didn't matter. But the thing is that it was motivated by something that seemed, I think, tangent, like connected to black radicalism, black liberation. Mm -hmm. And that you, you, if you measure the threat by the reaction, Bernie Sanders and the white left is not the threat. It is the, it is any movement tangent that is even connected to black liberation. It's got to be multi, like, it's got to be co-opted by, you know, liberal media, and then it's got to be violently suppressed by, uh, you know, by the government. Yeah, but I also, you know, at the same time, any, I think you're, I think, first off, I think you're right. Like what you're talking about Bernie Sanders and how you can tell the reaction of the establishment and the reaction's important. Like no one was, Bernie Sanders, like you're saying, was a paper tiger. 
Um, and I think a second thing, I think what you were mentioning like way back, which we've, we've kind of riffed off of this thing about a material challenge versus a moral challenge is interesting. And I think both are really important. And I think what you're saying, you said something earlier, which I really liked, which was about how you need unity in both. Like if you want to present a real challenge, you need a moral challenge, challenge and a material challenge. And I think on one hand, it's like what China if China, like what you're saying, like China, if China is morally trying to lift people out of poverty, is giving the material resources to do so, is presenting a challenge to Western banks, Western loans, which are vultures, that's great. Then what will Amer- like what will Americans do? What will like leftists, Asian Americans, black Americans, like will we will we like in the past in the sixties you would have people like Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson, the great freedom fighter, him taking sides publicly being like, okay, we need to take what they're doing is right, morally right. It And they have the material resources to back it. Like we need to join in unity with them and build a movement off of that. Like then what are we going to do? And I think a second thing is, I do think throughout history, like especially I go back to the civil rights movement again, or the black freedom movement. I feel like it was both a material and moral challenge, like the Montgomery bus boycotts, for example. And I think that's the kind of movement that I feel like we need today and that we've been kind of been waiting for, but we don't know like how it'll come about, which is why Diana earlier, you're saying like, okay, but how do you even build unity? Like it's just been so, so infiltrated by like forces. I feel like we don't even know and can't really identify. They're like working all the time. The state is always constantly make sure there's no movement with any leadership that can actually present a challenge to how things are today. But I feel like that is the movement we're waiting for. And I feel like, Teen, you bringing up like the protests in Minneapolis, like what's happening today, I think we need a movement that's a material and a moral challenge. It has to be similar to how King was also synthesizing. Like it has to be a moral and material challenge. It has to talk about war, race, and militarism. And I also think there has to be leadership. And in order for a movement to be that sustained, for it to continue, not just for a month, two months, but for a long time, you need to have leadership and you need to make sure like people need, their consciousness has to be risen. Like it can't just be people on the ground, like you're saying boots on the ground. It has to also be minds, like minds that are awake and conscious and clear about the purpose. At the end of the day, if we pass away and we're not done with the deed that like we will know having passed away like this is why we did all this like we have a clear purpose of what kind of society we want that it's about human freedom it's not just about one policy change and I think yeah because I think in order to do something like the Montgomery bus boycott for example which is a material and moral challenge like you like you were you were mentioning teen earlier about how it has to be a moral and material challenge. I think you just need a strong sense of consciousness. And I even think that like that level of consciousness you saw in something like the Montgomery bus boycott where people are willing to not take a bus every day, willing to walk like 10 miles to work. Like that takes a high level of consciousness and it takes a high level of spirit. Um, I think it's going to be a huge uphill challenge for us today, but it's what we need. Let, let me, let me off. Yeah. Let, let me offer like, um, Something I've noticed is that um, black radicals today online, I think that they get and I think black black people in America generally, uh, I think they're they're they get frustrated, I think, when allies appear, particularly liberal allies and offer moral validation of what they're doing. I think. Because in a way, they recognize that that's of no value to them. And and when you listen to the way they talk, I'm sorry, this is a siren. But like when you listen to them talk, they, it, they're, they're like, look, talk is cheap. But 
who among you is going to go and really make a sacrifice or do something materially supportive of the movement without just coming in and virtue signaling and saying like, oh, you know, you, you, uh, you really are in, you're an ally, you know, all this stuff. And I, and I've noticed this real dismissiveness of people who want to get in there and be like, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, my company's totally in support of BLM and we're going to get rid, rid of Mrs. Butters, Buttersworth or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, Aunt like, Jemima. Aunt Jemima. like they get it, you know, like they're starting to be like, look, we don't give a shit. What we need is an action plan. We need people to enact some change, like for real, like you need to go do something. But even then, even with that understanding, it isn't clear what that would be. You know, I mean, sure, we could we could do boycotts and stuff. But I mean, I, I still think that that's throwing, you know, uh, pennies at a tank just to some extent. And and I think it, it part of it is, and I was listening to um, uh, to Trevor talk about this with some friends last night. Uh, Trevor Trevor Beaulieu, uh, he had they had did a live stream, and they were talking about you know every time black people get together to talk about this stuff, everyone volunteers answers. Everyone's got answers, but he was like nobody has questions. Meaning like he's not. He was like, we should just compile a list of questions because everyone's got proposals for what to do, but no one's really framed the problem. You know, and and I think that that was a good point because really, in a way, you know, I don't think there's necessarily a way that uh, a black radical movement can really present a serious economic security and uh, moral challenge all on its own, all at the same time. And I don't think it certainly can get in bed with like Chinese money or Chinese weapons or something. You know, that's crazy, right? So. You know, I think in a way, and I wonder if this is the case. Now, now we're just in speculative territory, but I wonder if, you know, this is different than the 60s. And, and I think about stuff that saw, you know, someone like a Zizek has talked about in terms of challenging capitalism is capitalism is, is in sort of a way its own contradictions will bring it about. It's different now because the American system of capitalism is in many ways, you can see it as being in a critical stage already. Like the US is fucked up. A lot of that was brought upon it by itself, right? It didn't necessarily have to be that, uh, you know, someone brought it down, but the own contradictions of the system brought it down. I don't think China brought the US down. I think the US brought the US down. Like we like to blame China for say, having stolen our wealth, so to speak, but it wasn't China that forced us to like relocate our economic, our, our industrial base over to China. It was our own corporations. We demand China pay us reparations, but we refuse to demand reparations from the companies that chose to relocate. In fact, we just keep bailing them out and bailing them out. So I think that I wonder now if the real challenge or what we're really seeing uh, now in in in, in the twenty in twenty twenty that seems to be different than all the times before is that like America is sort of or at least the system that America had developed post-World War II and the system of American he uh, hegemony is sort of falling apart, is imploding. And no, do we I, really I, have to do the hard... Do we have to see it as throw throw pennies at the tank until we finally, you know, pierce its armor? Or do we let the whole thing just kind of realize that the thing is going to blow up on its own and sort of like <laughs> position around that, you know? I thought about that, you know? Like, I feel like this, um, the whole coronavirus pandemic and the U.S. handling of that, it's... 
I see it as like a kind of a Chernobyl moment, you know, and like I have serious uh, concerns whether the the union will even be able to survive survive this long term if they if the, like major changes at a structural on the structural foundations of this country aren't um, aren't imp- uh, imposed like very soon. And you know, I think part of the conversation that you that we've been having right now is like. I mean, this is all like the blaming China for our own issues. This doesn't help anybody. This this doesn't harm China. This harms ourselves because we can't reflect on our own issues and change them. So, I mean, I, I guess if, what if I'm saying is like, no, no. But if, if that's yeah. the case, like, do we even care about xenophobia? Right? Like, it seems like it's speeding up the U.S.'s own demise. So why don't we just say, okay, think whatever you want about China and just like twiddle our thumbs and wait for the collapse. I care about it just in the sense that I think it's something that Chinese Americans have to, like, this is an Asian American podcast, right? And I'm a Chinese American. I, I feel like we need some way to think about it, but I don't necessarily, I guess what I'm saying is like, okay, you talk to black radicals. I don't think they really give a shit about reforming America or making, you know, making America come around to, fixing its ways or whatever. I think a lot of them are just like, look, I just want to live my life separate and apart from the US now. That's, I've, I've heard that said a lot is like, look, I just want to live my life the way I want to live it. And I don't give a fuck about the rest of America. America can go to hell or America can do whatever the fuck it wants, but leave me alone. Robeson, when he was dragged in front of Congress, said basically the same thing. They're like, look, if you hate America so much, why don't you just go back to the Soviet Union where you seem to be such a fucking uh, big shot? Why don't you just go over there? And he was like, fuck you. He's like, I've, I've been here just as long or longer than you. He's like, I'm not going anywhere. You you get the fuck out of here, right? It's a very like, I don't give a shit about America anymore. I don't care about reforming it. I don't care about fixing it. I just want it to leave me the fuck alone, you know? And, and I think that might be a useful uh, way of understanding maybe what the project might be. Uh, as a Chinese person, you know, I don't want, and I don't think the Chinese want to replace American dominance. And I think that that's the yellow peril idea is this fear that what China wants to do is replace America and step into its shoes the way that honestly America stepped into the shoes of Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan after we colonized those countries post World War II, take over them, resume their antagonisms against yeah, communism, that's, right? That's just another projection. Yeah. And uh, and I think that what I see the Chinese trying to do, and which is why I don't think it's right to try and keep China down, is in line with, I think, what a lot of the rest of the world wants. Uh, and we're the exception, which is a multipolar world where there is no hegemon, where every country, every region has a, a degree of self-determination uh, and and should be trusted to manage its own affairs, that we live in a world where there isn't a single dominant system and we're not always heading towards uh, a singularity of unity, right? And, uh, you know, I don't think that Black radicals see it that way either. I don't think Black radicals see them selves as replacing the conscience, the the moral code of America, reforming America into a better country, uh, all this stuff. I think a lot of times what I see is 
I just want America to leave me the fuck alone. You know, I think that's the Robeson point of view. It's just like, leave me alone and let me live my life the way I want to live it. You go live your fucking life, but don't tread on me. And, you know, and, and, and to me, that's also sort of this fear in America that the, you know, black people will replace white people. Which is why we always have these like weird like media projects where we like blackface stuff, you know, like white man's yeah. burden. Like, like let's invert this, this. So like all the black people are the oppressors, you know. <laughs> There's or, literally a movie coming out like that. It's like, really? what if, yeah, 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 yeah. What if black supremacy and like all the police are black people just like shooting white people? Right, in the back. right. It's awful. Yeah. No, I, 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 okay, so that sorry. that makes me think of um, you know how the U.S. keeps framing this. Cold War as like, oh, there's there's the US and there's China and those are the two poles of power now. But that's actually not even the what's really going on because Germany in Europe is becoming like a, a third pole of power and they're basically doing, you know, liberal democracy much better than the US. And it's I think it's it is that yellow peril um xenophobia that prevents people from even recognizing that yeah i think uh yeah i think that's i i just think that there's a future where we got to get past the notion that there even will be an america that or an american system or any system that resembles the current system of there being like a central power that in america we within let's just take america itself that like within America, we have to assume that there's going to be a new system of American morality, a new system of American governance, a new system of whatever. What if we just let the thing fall apart? You know, and I think that's kind of the reality we're confronting with. I mean, we're watching America fall apart. Do we actually want to push for unity? Do we actually want to push for, you know, America to do whatever it takes to save itself and to preserve itself and to preserve the union? You know, and I'm and I'm seeing that a lot of the disillusionment that uh, leftists have and black radicals have in terms of Biden and 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 going back to uh you know sort of the Clinton onwards form of third way uh, neoliberalism. Uh, well, okay, but mm. that's that's why I keep going back to the nukes, you know, and we uh, have the to, nukes to, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a fascism. Yeah. It, like I don't care about America falling apart, but I know that when a country when a nation or an individual like this um reaches their low point they fucking lash out and i don't want the rest of the world to suffer and i don't want the people of color in america to suffer because i i know that's what's going to happen if we just sit and wait for america to fall apart that's a that's a good point for america to fall apart and that's why like Talking about building a movement is not because like, yeah, like rah, rah, let's do something. It's because like you care about people. America, yeah. it's not, it's not like, patriotism. It's yeah. humanism. Oh, no, I don't mean descend into chaos. I don't mean, I don't mean fall apart in terms of let's <laughs> no, just all like turn into Mad Max. I mean, I mean, if the system, the system as it exists now collapses without an alternative for the people. But, um, but, but the United, but the, the, but the British empire fell apart. Part, right and i think in many ways they, okay the- but they were they were still couched by you know this like white supremacist global system and they still had that cultural dominance and they still had the wealth that they accumulated right. yeah. from centuries of they, colonization they did but i think in the end though i think that the british working class probably benefited from the fall of empire 
Yeah. Well, the British working class benefited. They still benefited from colonialism. Yeah. Like immigrants were, are still pouring into England to uh, pump up their economy with labor. No, but I'm saying like, we shouldn't as Americans fear the loss of American empire. I think it would be good for us. No, And I don't think, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm trying to say is like, I don't necessarily think we've got to reform America. I think in many ways, this huge, like hierarchical, uh, you know, system of capitalist and imperial dominance. I don't know if you can reform it. I think part of it has to just, it's just got to sort of recede and, and collapse a little bit. And I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be good for us. I mean, I, I mostly you know? agree with you, mm-hmm. it, but the nukes. But the nukes, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, if, if there were no, if, if there were no nukes, you know, because England and all the European colonial powers post World War II, they didn't have nukes. So there was no way they could fucking lash out the way that the US can. And like, assuming that they, can restrain themselves and not do that i totally agree with you but the nukes yeah i i don't think teen i totally agree i don't think anyone should be no one should fear the loss of american empire actually we should be encouraging the fall of the american empire i mean it's already falling apart like you were saying and i also agree that i think all different facets of people so many different facets of people in america are feeling the the descendants of American empire and also America as we know it. Like even the white working class, like white people also feel like their promise of the American dream is gone. Like their times of being the middle class, they, they already feel like they're losing that status. Poor white people don't feel like they are able to find a job. Like black people don't feel like they're able to find a job. Poor black people, like immigrants are also not sure like what their place is. I mean, every, all different like parts of American society are feeling the crisis in different ways. You have mental health, which we talked about last week too. I mean, last time, but I think it's like, it does come down to what is the alternative then something has to give rise. Like you were saying, if, if America is falling apart, which it is falling apart, then like what will happen after you can't just, we can't just let it like, if we're recognizing it, we can't just let it fall apart and not be ready with a new society already have the seeds within like the millions of bajillions of people who make up America and are right. Like we need to develop leadership. Like there has to be leadership. There has to be a plan. It has to be guided by the right principles. Like we already saw i'm currently reading black reconstruction by du bois for the first time it's like the most humongous book i've ever read in my whole life and it's amazing because he's talking he's specifically talking about the civil war after the civil war which is you know not so different from right now actually maybe he's saying like what happens after you have complete chaos america as you know it a slave system it's doing well because of the slave labor. What do you do now? You have like some basic infrastructure, you have raw materials, but there's complete chaos. Who will the leadership be? Where does the leadership have to come from? We kind of know what happened after civil war. We have America today, America as we know it, with all of its fake finance, its imperialism, all of that, all the world wars that came from, I mean, in some ways came from the civil war. We know the end result. But how I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, the South still hasn't recovered exactly. from the Civil War. Yeah. So, I mean, the question becomes, like, what do we do? Like, we have to be ready. Like, we can't just we can't just sit here and say, like, America's falling apart. Like, something has to happen. Like, a movie the, has the, to emerge. This is a real – see, this is where I think we could actually have – this is a debate, right? Like, now we're in a debate because I, I kind of disagree. I think that uh, uh, Webb Du Bois and uh, Baldwin <laughs> – you know, to me, Webb Du Bois is pretty loved by white people, and as is Baldwin. 
And I would say that someone yesterday said, my, my, uh, I love this. She was like, uh, my standard is if white people like them too much, I got to look a little closer. <laughs> right. And I thought that was hilarious. And I think, I think part of it, and here's my debate. And I, and I will, I'm going to lodge a disagreement here, which is that I think any notion that we cannot let this system go until we have something better in place is, itself while while a plausible it's a it's a thing that makes intuitive sense but i think in many ways it's it is the hook that allows the current system to stay in place because it says until you can come in and replace me with a system that immediately just makes me uh just just does everything that i do but better until that happens I have to stay because the alternative is worse. And, you know, I think coronavirus in 2020 itself might be showing that I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, I think like, you know, I think it, I guess I'm a little bit of an advocate for there needs to be a, a period of actual destruction and, um, and, and, and that a new system is not going to be designed and implemented, you know, and, and, and will just replace the system and you get people to buy into this new vision or whatever. I think what happens is that. It might be a little bit of both, but I think what happens is as this system falls apart, you know, new new ways will emerge. I don't know if it's necessarily like we need a leadership class that will have the both moral and material resources to wholesale transform America into its next stage. You know, I, I, I think actually that even the, the feeling that we need that is what keeps the current system in place because we kind of know that's never going to happen. It's impossible so, to some extent. You know, I think we I, need yeah. to let it fall. It's, it, it's like creative destruction, uh, creative dis- destruction. You kind of have to clear a little bit of space, uh, for people to build. Um, I, I think that's mm-hmm. um, sort. I, I agree with that, but mm-hmm. there's also. I mean, what if the new thing, the, the new um, system that emerges, is hardcore ethno nationalism and genocide? Because- that's why. If it is, that's why we can never get out of the current system, right? Because if that's the case, then what I said is correct. It's it's because the fear that it's going. You know what we're at heart. The the real. The real identity of America is, you know, an Aryan nation that's going to sort of recreate the horrors of Nazi Germany. If we, that's what we really are underneath the cloak, then you're right. We got to vote Biden and make sure that we never leave the 1990s, you know, because the next stage Mm -hmm. is going to be a horror show. And I don't think that there is a way to sugarcoat that. And I I, I honestly like uh, my, uh, I'm a suit. Emily, I apologize because I'm super. I'm just super pes- pessimistic I these days. I've been Du Bois, teen. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Yeah, I, I think that. I think. I think. No, I, I. I think that. I think he was very much about in, in line with Baldwin in the sense of of this notion of transforming America, right, and saving America to an extent. And yeah, because they care th- about the people. Mm-hmm. They care about black people who are the most disenfranchised poor of this nation. Like if you destruct America, if you like just want it to fall apart without even having some seeds of how we're going, like if you don't even have a movement, say, if you don't have a sense of like, okay, then what will emerge out of it? Then you're just like, you're willing to just let black people in this country die. 
Well, no, I, I, well, uh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, well, I think there's a reason. I'm not saying that I've, I've fully. F- like middle class, the rich, like the ruling class, Bezos, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Well, I think, for example, that the, the well, I, I think that the, you know, a lot of black radicals are looking outside of America and saying like, okay, one great model for what they would like to see something closer to the Haitian revolution. In the Haitian revolution, Haiti has been really uh, sort of marginalized and isolated and they've, they faced blockades and also they have to pay reparations to France and all this shit. And it's a poor country. Uh, but despite that, I think the, you know, uh, black radicals in America look at the, that and say, uh, well, that's a true radical thing is, is an actual revolution and just autonomy, uh, uh, autonomy, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, and this is more of an abstract debate that we're having, right? Is, 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 I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know from what I've seen online and in, and in discussion these days, whether black radicalism itself is presenting itself as any alternative to, uh, America, uh, so much as saying, we just want room to be un, to, we just want freedom from you all. You know, and I think Robeson was saying something like that. Like he was like, I'm not trying to turn America into the new Soviet Union. I just, I just don't want to be fucked with. You know, and abstract mm-hmm. though. Like, do, what do mm-hmm. boys is saying? What Baldwin's saying? It's not abstract. Even who they are, they're not abstract people. They're real human beings. Were they who were born in a society that hated them, that didn't think they were smart? And you know what? They became the greatest thinkers probably in American history. They're the only people to this day who were able to understand how imperialism is connected to race, it's connected to white supremacy, it's connected to capitalism, what has happened to labor, black labor and white labor in history, including slaves. Oh, well, but that, that that's not true in the sense that uh, there were a lot of other black radical writers that well, were yeah, not. I'm just saying, like, yeah. you can uh-huh. them. I think, if anything, we mm-hmm. have a lot more to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this of this debate as an abstract. I'm thinking like in five years, I don't want to be nuked, and I don't want to be genocided in a <laughs> like, right, right. internment camp. Wait, but 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 okay. But let's take that fear for 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 a sec. Then, then what are mm-hmm. your alternatives, though? I mean, then aren't you really sort of committed to being like, uh, I'm going to vote Biden, and we need to sort of restore order in America? I mean, kind for of thing. now, like, yeah. For now. I mean, it, yeah, but then I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that for now has been the case ever since, you know, the 90s. And I don't know if we're ever going to... I mean, it, my, what I'm saying is like, we got to be open to the idea then that mm-hmm. it's either this or we turn into Nazi Germany. I mean, that's what I'm preparing for because you know, I don't have... I don't have uh-huh. any faith in white people to not yeah. to not do that. Like I don't know if Germany could have turned into a socialist state had things had 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 the chips fallen a little bit differently. You know, right. I think they were destined to t- I I don't know that obviously nobody knows that for a fact, but I, I just don't know if they if the notion of a communist Germany was was even potentially viable, you know, and and mm. uh, with America, uh if that's the fear, then it's possible that incrementalism is the only thing keeping us from doing that. And maybe that's the moral case. That seems to be what someone like a Noam Chomsky seems to think, you know? Can I also just say that I wouldn't necessarily discount somebody just because white people love them because a lot of times white people love, you know, somebody they don't love that person. They love a misunderstanding of what they said or what they were about you know like mlk white people love mlk but you know they love these 
certain quotes from him that were not his full message to begin with, and they were not how he was when he was murdered by the FBI. So I don't don't agree. I would would still read, you know, (laughs) I I would still want to read the text before I make up my mind. Agreed. I would say, though, that it's worth keeping in mind, I think, that there is uh, that there is a growing distinction between some black radicals and uh and um like take like a robeson or a robinson mm-hmm. uh and okay. versus uh you know a baldwin or a dubois who uh you know dubois i think also being the sort of like coining the term the talented 10th and stuff i think that that you know at that time sure but i think now with the hindsight of you know going through obama and stuff that yeah i think it's clear yeah. to everyone that his well he later wrote and corrected that and said what he meant was the guiding a hundredth like what he was getting at was this idea of leadership but i also think i mean i agree with what diana was saying about you can't discount people like that but also like using the same logic you could say okay then i am going like if that's my litmus test then i'm gonna like the most obscure academic who has written about black radicalism and only like four black people like this person but at least like it's just black people and no white people like them like i don't think Mm. that means that's Mm -hmm. automatically good then no, I no, agreed. I mean, she she was she was just kind of saying something sort of like uh, a little bit flippant, but yeah, funny, but I, you know. I, mean, I think yeah. I know what you're yeah. saying because I feel like yeah. it's also like in this day and age, like who it becomes really hard to know who to trust. Like mm-hmm. who do you who to trust? Yeah, yeah. How do you judge yeah. whose ideas? are actually like what we should be guided about and take as the truth. I, I go by I my own. Understand, but at the same time, like I'm going to trust King. Like King lost his life at the age of 38 for a movement because he loved people so much, not just black people, but he loved all humanity so much that he was willing to die for it. Like all mm-hmm. people have sacrificed their lives. Like Robeson, Du Bois, they've all gone to jail. Like if we're going to talk about McCarthyism, they have been lo- the lo- some of the largest victims of McCarthyism. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and so, for sure. I mean, there's a level of sacrifice here that even if like white people like Du Bois, which I'm not even sure, to be honest, I don't even know if white people like Du Bois. I think there's just a level of sacrifice of people in that day and age, including Kwame Ture, who like, you know, I'm going to respect these people to a certain level still, because I think there's honestly just there are certain ideals and a love for the people and a level of sacrifice that it's so hard to find for us today. And like, I don't know if I even have like one tenth of their level of love and sacrifice, but I want to be more like them than I want to be more like, I don't know, you know, some like academics who are all talk, right. don't know a single person on the street. I, I guess what I'm, uh, what I'm suggesting here is kind of like what I said earlier from, I mean, ultimately, who do you trust? You've got to sort of have your own system of, you got to trust yourself to an extent, right? I guess what I'm, what I'm seeing now, uh, cause 2020 is just such a, we're in such a weird time. I think that what I trust now is this division, again, this understanding of this view of black radicalism as not, no longer interested in moral uh, legitimacy, but rather having a body, having, you know, hands and having material means. I, I don't think that their sense of moral status is something that they even feel they need to fight for anymore because you know they're convinced right they already know they they they, they seem the the you know the the thing that really frustrates their being uh, the black radical movement i think in america is the lack of any material means of 
you know, an actual revolution or separation or overthrow of a system of white supremacy, not in its moral sense, but in its material sense. Meaning, I don't know if they're necessarily interested in reforming white people so that they think in better terms, but they just don't want to deal with a system where white people own all the water, all the land, run all of the police departments, run all of the corporations. It's not just that, you know, white people don't have their minds straight about race in America or white supremacy, but it's also the material fact of, you know, white, white material, of white dominance um, that they're that they're taking aim at. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know if I, I'm starting to see that, you know, we're, we're really at a stage in 2020 where we're, we're, we're starting to talk about like, look, we, we need to talk about actual nuts and bolts of how to get past the current system. Like, how do we get out yeah. of here? I think and that's, that's just a hard. step away from uh, moral superiority or moral supremacy of the US, right? And I think that's something that we could actually learn from because if we, I mean, that's that, that's something that the U.S. will – that's like the only thing that you, the U.S. has over China. And so if you're saying that a lot of the radical the radicalism today is moving away from that, that's only a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really does seem like this is – it's a it's a time where you know and I've seen liberals move in terms of their moral uh, and cultural discussions really far to the quote left right like you're seeing wide just open acknowledgement of white supremacy like you know all these books about how to be anti racist and how to not be a shitty white person and you know like there's just there it's almost like there's a repenting going on mm-hmm. by the white establishment. And particularly in the liberals. And I wonder if that is part of this notion of trading morality and moral uh, status or, or legitimacy in exchange for keeping material dominance. Yeah, that absolutely is what it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think we've got in, and the more we see them repent, the more it seems to me that what they're really doing is going like, look, what do you want me to say? I'll say whatever it takes. Just don't let me lose my job. Don't let, you yeah. know, don't let me, uh, do, don't let there be a change. I'll do anything except redistribute my resources. Yeah. Like you want to see me like go, you know, just whatever it takes, I will repent, but just don't change a goddamn thing. Cause I'm got a pretty nice life going, you know, like yeah. I think that's kind of what's going on now. Yeah. And, and, that's, and yeah. that's why the, all the discussions about racism and xenophobia and you know, everything like the liberals always boil it down to some personal grudge, mm. you know, like some interpersonal issue and of, of like hurt feelings or um, just like, just like a, something that happens, but like one person says something else. It's always about talk and about ideas, but like nothing ever actually changes and like the, i think like i've seen a lot of um people saying like oh you know like it's not about you how it, how you hurt me or anything like I, the emphasis that whites always always put on um the discussion is like oh look how we hurt you know black people and like somebody said something that was just like like i'm i'm not hurt like i don't care that you're racist but you know like i just think you're a racist like you haven't hurt me i just think you're a racist and i think you should you should stop you know and like that's the long and short of it you know like i think that 
focus on just like just taking away the power of like focusing on ideas um that's that's the most radical thing that we can do now yeah just, like just focus on that yeah i took yeah, a perfect example of that and and emily i guess uh it's it's what i mean by falling apart let's take a look at what happened coming out of what happened coming out of minneapolis uh the demand to defund the police, which is in, in, in essence saying getting rid of the police. That's a material demand. I think took white liberals by surprise because they're so used to supporting BLM in the abstract that when they said abolish the police, they agreed with that in principle, but then morphed it into defund the police, which morphed into decrease the budget of the police by 10%. <laughs> Right. And that's what I'm saying now is that in some ways, I think we should abolish the police and not replace it with anything per se. And I, I, that's impossible, I know. But in a way that like, look at the police, like we can't have that anymore. We've seen like we've seen too much about the police now and what they do and how they behave and how they're they're all fucking armed like they're invading a country, which is, in fact, what they've done that they need to be abolished. And I don't know if we necessarily have to immediately uh, ask, uh, you know, answer all questions as to, well, what are you going to replace them with? What if we just don't need them? You know, and and I think that there will be attempts to show that in uh, cities like New York that have taken defund the police somewhat seriously and and de Blasio's uh, said, okay, here, uh, let's uh, decrease them by 10%. What's going to happen? Well, you'll see the... Uh, Trump administration gleefully allow New York City to go bankrupt, uh, not provide us with you know any bailout funds, watch crime go up, and then blame uh, all of that on uh, the notion that we should defund the police. Like, well, that's what happens when you say defund the police; your crime goes up. Well, you know, I, I just think like in, in some ways, like if we want to be serious about some uh, a material demand for liberation like abolish the police that we have to be comfortable with the notion that you know things are not necessarily going to get materially better right away like we just need to reframe our understanding of the state and say like what police are an illegitimate force and we need to get rid of them and what are we going to replace it with whatever comes next i don't know like something will maybe some form of uh, community policing, you know, the way, you know, the Black Panthers had uh, modeled, you yeah, know, there, like there are models, there are different models for um, policing and other systems. And like, I, mm -hmm. I, I do agree that not every system will have an alternative to be put into place before they're um, before, before they're gone. And it might be better that way. But alternatively, mm -hmm. like, you know, th there can be different uh, ways to um, change different systems, right? Like you wrote about this in that cryptocurrency thread that, you know, we're going to we're going to make into an article pretty soon, right? Because it's like China is mm -hmm. using just like the completely unbiased um, way that like cryptocurrency turns like digital assets into to behave like physical assets so that you don't need a trusted authority like the US to handle um, the the global um, community's money in any meaningful way. And so that's like a material counter 
to the US's power, the US and the UK's power, right? And it's also at the same time, only able to do this because it's providing another better alternative. So there could be like situations where, you know, like the police, I don't know, something like the police just get abolished. And then you deal with the um, consequences of that. Like some systems might get worse before they get better, but other systems there are um, like there are replacements available, like in China and in like other socialist countries. And like we can take a look at what is available now to um, kind of like not not uh, re- like use those as a model. Yeah, use those systems that are already in place in other countries to model like a new system that we can create in the US and you know there will still be an adjustment period and it still might be pretty rough for a while but it's still better than like this neoliberal system or absolute chaos like it's never it's never one or the other like that or we could just trust what what black radicals have said like Huey Huey P Newton right about about self defense mm-hmm. uh you know we could just trust that and be like 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 that's what that's what they're going with right like we've already seen uh that in you know in the form of the black panther party you know and i i i i guess that but i mean that that is an alternate system it is an alternate system yeah and and i i guess part of it to me is like you know in terms of black radicalism in the united states it's part of it to me is just like let it take its shape i think that's the radical part of it is like i'm not trying to reform anything i'm not trying to remake anything there's already something here that we want that is opposed to your system all we need is space for this to become something black radicalism to you know i think is mere liberalism to the extent that it's just a moral case it's only radicalism once you take it seriously as an alternative system of self-governance. And, and, and part of me is just kind of like, why not? I mean, the I radicalism is organization. Like I think something revolutionary is when you can create an organization, both an organized society, but even just an organization. And I mean, I'm glad you brought up Huey P. Newton because I think, I think what's really revolutionary about him and Bobby Seale and the Black Panthers is because they were an organization. It wasn't just, it did come from self-defense it came from mm-hmm. like creating organized response to what it was, what it was and is police violence and police brutality. But they were not just that. They were also, they were an organization because they had the free breakfast programs. Um, they were feeding children. They were doing education. Like they were educating young, young people in, th- in ideas, in philosophy, in theory. Um, they were reading a lot of stuff that like people today probably won't ever get to read in college. And I think what's revolutionary is the organization part, not the, not just, not really the, like, let's just let things happen part. Uh, yeah, but I guess part of that is trust though, right? It's like, part of that to me is like, which goes first? Do you have to prove to us uh, non-Black people in America that, you know, you're going to do that? Or do you, are you just owed trust uh, to do it how you want to do it? Like, which well, comes so, first? Do they have to prove that they're going to do that? Or do we just say, the, the, the radical thing is to hear just say, like, look, you get to uh, do I, it. And I, I guess think, for me, mm-hmm. uh, I the, the part that I don't trust isn't that the black radicals won't do that. It's a distrust that they would be even allowed to do that without their leaders getting assassinated and just mm-hmm. like the, the whole organization crushed before they're even able to make any substantial changes. 
Yeah, I mean, under the current system, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's going to happen, and it and, it, and, it and happened with the it happened in St. Louis. It, it's probably going to happen in. Uh, it's probably happening already. Uh, we just don't know about it, you know, yeah, in terms of I emergent guess, uh, movements coming out of Minneapolis. Yeah, that's just my my fear in general is that um, that that's like my fear in general is that um, the current system is not going to give up without a huge fight because. They have the nukes. I just keep, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's the nukes that are the issue, and the fact that they always, always take it out on people of color, especially the ones that are in the U.S. You know, like it's not an abstract. Um, it's not an abstract for me. Like I'm saying that, like if we just let things happen, we will be the ones killed. I'm not even that concerned about the nukes because the nukes are like the last stand. I think the scary thing is the fact that we've got like an an occupying military force in the form of like local police departments that are all synced up through these like networks that we don't know about. They all act Mm -hmm. the same. They all act in unison and they're armed like a fucking military. And we have this huge gulag, this ethno gulag with like two and a half million prisoners and they will lock your ass up for life. Like you'll never be heard from again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you'll just be deposit. Did you hear what that the mayor of Kenosha had said? It was after like a uh, like five black youth had like uh, had uh, stolen some stuff from a Tommy Hilfiger outlet store. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, he was like, you know, there's just some people that you just got to throw in a warehouse and just lock it up, you know, just so the rest of us can be better. Like that's the thinking is just throw these people into a box. So we'll never hear from them again. And that yeah, is, I mean, in, in, I'm in scared a, of in that. In a way, you know? I mean, yeah. I, me too. You know, in a way, mm-hmm. like uh, the black population is already being interned. Yeah, the true leftists and radicals in my mind, we have never heard of from them because they're in fucking prison or they're dead. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's the thing that's going on in America. And part of it, that's really scary to me. And I think that in some ways we've reached in 2020 a point where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the right thing to do or say is. And liberals, I think, are still trading this notion that we know. We know what to do. We know what the answer is. If As, as long as I think we believe that we know what the right answer is, that we're certain that if we do this, everything will be okay, that I think we're still trading in... Uh, a bit of fantasy. I really, really feel like right now, 2020, we don't know what the fuck is coming next. Uh, that it's, it's scary. I, I think all conversations now that are honest will lead to a point where we're like, we just don't fucking know. And, and we've got to be comfortable with not knowing, you know, does that make, I don't know. It's, I feel like this conversation has come to that point to some degree where we're, <laughs> I mean, we don't that, know. We don't, we don't know the fucking answer. I don't know. Are, are you what, trying what, to say like, next. you know, circling back to how should Chinese Americans deal? Are you saying that we should just get comfortable with the uncertainty? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like a, a lot of the pain comes from this belief that we should fix it. That That's a very this has to go- American mm-hmm. exceptionalism mentality is that, we're the world leader of democracy. We have all the answers and we're going to fix the world's problem problems. And it's super paternalistic and gross. And honestly, like America just needs to get the fuck over itself. It's going to fall apart. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that we seem to be stuck in uh, a lot of trying to f- address or like suing for justice and 
addressing past wrongs and making things right. You know, that's really what we're trying to do. I think that in a way that's kind of besides the point now, you know, because what we really should be doing is getting ready for and anticipating the kind of future that's coming our way. It's coming one way or another, and it might be horrible. I don't know. I don't know if it's really like, I don't know if we as like, okay, like we talk about this idea, like what is the role of Asian Americans? Well, we live in America. We have therefore an outsized influence on how America will behave. I think there's there's a degree of truth to that, but I think there's also a degree of delusion to think that just living in America means that you have any say in what's going to happen. Uh-huh. You know, um, I think we're pretty powerless, not just Asian Americans. I mean, anybody, everybody uh-huh. uh, in America is pretty powerless um, to really shape what's coming next. That's well, in, super, yeah, that's super cynical. I know, but no, it's, it's, it's true. Not, no. Individuals are, are powerless, just period, you know, like, and we, we keep getting fed these hero movies these hero stories about how like this one guy single-handedly saved the world and shit and like it's never like that you need organization you need community action yeah together man you guys are so cynical I, but we didn't make 2020 happen. You know what I mean? Like, well, I think we were just reacting. I, well, here's the thing. Is, I knew Diana was going to be like, we're old. This is what happens. It's natural. You know what's so funny was an older guy who I talked to uh, called me super cynical and said that I've been influenced too much by the young cynics out there. <laughs> well, now you have me and I'm here and I'm ready to change the world and i think we have to do it together and this is why we're having this conversation yeah i think though it's about survival rather than takeover i don't think we're going to be able to take over america and make it into something better i think we're gonna have to survive america and hope that as it falls apart it does so in an orderly peaceful fashion uh rather than some cataclysmic you know, I'm so uh, cynical about just like the the ethno fascism that I, in some ways, I don't think we can even survive unless we take it over. Because otherwise, it's just going to be taken over by the fascists, like <laughs> who want to genocide us. Like they're already fucking burning like Asian grandmas. You know, it's like hmm. it's fucking unreal. I don't believe in the silent majority. You know, this idea that most Americans are like, you know just sort of like normal, rational people and they just don't get heard from. I think they're, I think we're, I think these, some exist, but I don't think that it's as big as we think. And, and, and most of America is pretty fucking crazy right now. And I, I think that um, fascism acts like, um, like an abuser or a a cult leader and they get you when you're vulnerable. Yeah. you know weakened and so like if a lot of people in america are in that position they're vulnerable to getting manipulated and becoming fascists yeah wow yeah (laughs) these are this is how discussions in 2020 go they just they just go all the way into the deep end you're like uh are we gonna nuke the rest of the world uh are we gonna descend into how do we end this how do we (laughs) how do we conclude this (laughs) I think Emily should say something positive. Yeah, I say something positive because <laughs> no, like I've been, I've just been on this trip. I've been on this tip too much, and I need to take a fucking break. You have to yeah. listen to the middle to hear all the positive pieces. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
But what's going on with you? Like, how do you... Okay, here's a question as a young person. I mean, as as an older cynic, like I've been feeling like the only way I can really process the uh, the stuff that's going on is to, uh, it, it is to sort of retreat into a kind of cynicism to say, like, I don't know if anything can be done. I think that what I'd like to do is just survive this. What's the alternative way of thinking about this? What's the case for optimism? You know, like, how do you go through something like 2020 and come out the other end saying, no, there's still hope to, you know, reform all this stuff? I know we have, I know teen, you're not the biggest fan of Du Bois and Baldwin. No, no, but, no I didn't say I that. But yeah, like yeah. that, even though, yeah. But I think, well, I think you have people. You do have people like Du Bois who lived through Reconstruction. He lived through the World Wars. You have Baldwin who lived through the Vietnam War. Who lived through? I mean, he goes in. I mean, his entire, all his works are about what it's like living as a black man in America. The thing that they have in common is not just love. I mean, all of these revolutionaries, but they, including Huey P. Newton who has seen so many of his friends die. Assass- like you're saying, Dana, assassinated by the FBI, CIA, the police. Like, no matter what, in the end, like you, despite how much you want to give up and they want to give up, what they always had in common was not just love for their people, but because of their love for the people, they never gave up hope. What they were committed to for their whole lives until the very last day is like, we will do what it takes. We will forever believe in a better America, a better society, a better world for black people, for white people themselves who, who don't even know how to live as human beings, for all people. And I just think we don't have any other choice. Like the only choice, if we don't want to be nuked, like Dan is saying, we don't want to be nuked, if we don't want like people who shouldn't die to die, like we can't give up hope. There's no other choice. Like what should we do? Cry and like go into a little hole, like dirt hole and like stay there for the rest of our lives? No, we like if we're the fact that we're even having this conversation and we're like taking it seriously enough that we want to talk about it with each other and spend this time and that we can even see some of the contradictions that are coming up, like it means we can't give up then. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to other people to make sure people don't get nuked, to like plant the seeds and build a movement that has the power because it can have the power to create organizations, to create communities that can make sure that people like not just survive, but live a decent life, that there will be a society for our children to grow up in. I just think there's no other choice but hope. And I don't think it's just because I'm young. I think it's because like I really do take I take a lot of these figures. I take King. I take Baldwin. I take Huey P. Newton. I take them really seriously. Like these are the people. I feel like a descendant of not just Chinese, like my ancestors, but I feel like who have suffered a lot throughout throughout these centuries. You know, I take them and I take Robeson. I take all these people seriously as my ancestors. And I think if they, I mean, I think they had to. They saw the world burn in the world wars. And I think 2020 is also a crisis. And I think we have to do them proud. And like, we have to keep going. We may not know what the future will hold, but we have to try. Like, you can't give up. Can I I ask you a question? A concrete one. When they burned down Precinct 1 in uh, Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. uh, how did you feel about that? What was your reaction to watching uh, the protesters burn down a police precinct? I mean, I don't, I didn't really watch that video. I think, I think one thing is, I think one thing is, I feel like people are, I think people do, we've talked about this last podcast, people are sensing that something, 
America's in crisis. Something has to change in our society. Like I had one of my coworkers tell me recently, she was like, people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think that's true. I think our task is now saying like, okay, what what will like what exactly needs to be changed and what will it take to be changed like you were saying about defund the police like if we i don't want something like defund the police to become like okay yeah part of the budget like a certain percent like five percent ten percent of the budget is gone like that's not enough it's the same thing if we're talking about we want a society to be more humane like i don't want that to be co-opted and turned into something that's not concrete and it goes from its original message um but that's been my response to everything that's been going on right now. Yeah, I, I, I guess when I saw, I'll tell you what I felt. I was like pretty excited about it because I was like, you know, I think they're they're fully right to burn it down because it's a public building and their tax money went to go build that building and their democratic, you know, they, their democratic consent. Uh, to allow the police to occupy that building came from the people. And so when the police violated that trust, they went and took the building away from them and then destroyed it. They created it. They get to destroy it. I guess I felt like I didn't think people should have to explain or feel like that that was an unfortunate act. I felt that the p- people have the right to burn it down. And if we were talking about something a little bit removed from us in history, if we were to learn, let's say there was a revolution, a good one, where the people stormed the police headquarters and destroyed it, like the French stormed the Bastille and the prison uh, and, and, and destroyed it, that that would be a really great thing. For me, I felt like it was a bit of a radical, it's a kind of a radical inversion to see that particular event as a really positive, inspiring thing. I was inspired by it. I was like, fucking burn it down. Beautiful. I guess that's what I mean by when I see, when I I feel like things need to be destroyed. You know, we don't need to reform the police. We need to get rid of it. Like we don't need to reform these racist cops. We need to make them unemployed uh, and take their jobs and their guns. I guess when people say radicalism, that's what I feel is, is this like I don't I'm not here to save you, you know, like we're here to take to get rid of this shit. So that's that's kind of how I felt. I, I don't know how do young people see it that way, you think? Or is it still was there still a bit of trepidation in that in that kind of act? You know, the kind of destructive acts that the that the um protest like burning cop cars and all this stuff, you know? Is that seen as unfortunate and oh, that's not really part of who the movement really what the best of the movement really stands for? Uh, or was that seen, do you think, as good? They, they deserve to have their cars and, and police property publicly funded uh, be destroyed and taken away. Well, I think young people aren't a monolith. Like, they're different thoughts. Oh, for, uh, yeah, for sure. But, yeah. Well, how would you feel about a library being burned down? I don't think they would do that. Well, just down the road from me, a free, the Free Library mm-hmm. of Philadelphia in my neighborhood was just destroyed. How would I feel? I think that's unfortunate. I I, I don't know if um, that represents a misuse of public uh, funds. You know, I think that's different for me anyway. I feel like that's different than burning a police precinct down. Yeah, I think the question becomes, it's like, it can't just be about the performance of the burning. It has to be like, when things like this happen, I think I ask myself, I'm just like, oh, what was the purpose? Like, what is, what are the motives of the group? Like, where is it going? To get us, I think it was to get us comfortable with the idea that we can take things back. Okay, but Teen, what if it's instead of a library or a police precinct, it's Mm. your immigrant mom's restaurant? 
Yeah, that's a tough one. I, that's a tough one for me. I don't think that we should necessarily be happy about uh, that being done because uh, I don't think taking back uh, immigrant businesses is a radical act, you know, mm-hmm. or destroying them. I think taking back police property is a radical act. Yeah. So yeah. I, I also um, disagree about just like letting those police officers be jobless mm-hmm. um, and just have, you know, like punitive consequences because when, when you just like leave them out in the cold, that's when they become radicalized into fascism and ethno-nationalism more so than they already are. Right. Like that's just going to push them to more extremes. I think you need to give them like a, a different path and like fucking re-education you know like uh-huh. i think i think china's right to re-educate people away from rat like extremism um mm. and i like i don't so- know if it can be d- done for them i i don't like that kid you know like yeah. the one that killed two yeah. people in kenosha he's not gonna come around i, I just don't I, I just don't think that he's really uh, young though Mm-hmm. He's like 17 or something. I I mean, I, I think don't think he was brainwashed by the cops. I think he wanted to be brainwashed by them. You know, like, no, no, he was the one like, that sought them out. He wants to be a cop. But he wants I'm to be saying like that like society in the U.S. today is brainwashing people into like, you know, like extremist violence, especially young white men. And mm. like, if you just say, okay, we're going to punish you. I mean, this is, you know... Like the like what people talk about like with restorative justice versus um, just a punitive justice, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it like violence does just creates more violence. And like wasn't it? Didn't Angela Davis even say like the 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 police who are murdering black people? Um, they need restorative justice too. Like it's not just about punishing the oppressors because honestly, individual cops. They are also victims of this system. Yeah, I mean, also, there, there are elders I know in Philly who also say, they're like, okay, but what about what about the black police officers who are hired as security officers at high schools? And who, like, there's a certain rhetoric around cops, but at the same time, from firsthand experience, she works at the school and she says, yeah, a lot of these black cops are some of the only mentors a lot of young children have because their parents aren't around or like their parents are incarcerated or it just becomes complicated um, with that. And I feel like with all these questions, there has to be, I mean, on one hand, I think we have, I, I want to know what like more people think, like more, like especially different people, like people in the community think. And I also think like who, I do think we have to have like the belief that people can change. Like you, we have to be willing as a society to change as a whole. Um, I agree with what Diana was saying. I, I think that they would be more susceptible to changing if we took away their badge and gun yeah, uh, and yeah, their tanks. I don't, I don't think they should be. Uh, I don't know if we necessarily, I don't necessarily know if we have to follow that up with, uh, uh, I mean, they should just go out and get another job like everyone else does. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, whatever it is like i don't think that, i don't think they, an, they should I get think, another job they should uh i don't fucking i don't know do an andrew yang style ubi whatever it is but all i know is that yeah it is complicated i agree but i think in my opinion there's a certain level of radicalism which is decisiveness which is like look i don't give a shit i just want the cops gone 
Like I've seen enough where I don't really want to entertain any more arguments about why it's justified that they are still, uh, you know, uh, mobilized. I just want them gone. Uh, I'm gone. And yeah, no, I agree. I want them gone and I want them yeah. reeducated. Um, but like, I, I just think as people, they shouldn't be left out in the cold. And that's King, but that's King though, right? King writing in, uh, you know, in Birmingham saying that, you know, you're, it's the white moderate and, and the person who values order over justice, right? To say that, yes, the ideals here, you know, of, of getting rid of, uh, the, the militarized police are good, but, how much disorder that's going to cause, how much suffering that's going to cause is the reason that it can't go. That's king. Sometimes it's the more uncomfortable aspects of black radicalism that needs to be embraced. I think part of it for me is like, I don't really- I I disagree with that because I think we're all saying we want the cops gone. We're just saying there needs to be a plan for these people for what happens after that. It's not, Mm -hmm. there's, there's no argument about whether- the police should be gone. It's just these people after they lose their jobs as cops, like they need a program to just teach them not to be what to, to basically undo the cop training. And they need a, a program that will place them into other jobs. And I don't think that is, that's not the same thing as the white moderate or the white liberal saying, no, but for, get rid of them. But for it, me is I, I, at this point, I don't care how they go. I don't care if they remain racist or whatever. All I want to know, all I want is a system where these people cannot kill people without uh, impunity, with impunity, nor put people into prison. Yeah, but if they stay racist- Like, that's the key. If they stay racist, they're going to- Like, then what if they kill people, except they don't have the uniform, they don't have the badge, but they still have a gun- that's yeah. a better out. That's a better situation than having that with than that with the gun and the badge. That's true also, because then so the I'll take that. Like then we can, can then we can worry about it later. But uh-huh. I'm saying like I would never want. I would never accept, and I don't think anyone should ever accept those concerns making us hesitate on the need to get rid of the police. You know what I mean? Like that's how I feel. Is is. Those concerns to me are secondary to the fact that racist police exist now. They have the full power of the state behind them to literally throw people into a warehouse and we never hear from them again. So to me, it's like, how can we have a radical movement if all radicals are immediately thrown into prison and we never hear from them again? Right. So let's solve that. And when people say stuff like, okay, well, but then we got to follow that up with, well, we got to make sure that they get a job because if they don't get a job, they're going to become even more racist. I'm like, I don't really care. (laughs) Not now. We can care about that later. But for now, I just don't want them to have a gun, uh, at least not one supplied by the state uh, and a position and authority. You know what I mean? If they're going to be racist on the street, let them be racist on the street. I'd rather that than that them be racist on the street with a badge and a gun. You know, to, to me, there's a decisiveness to the radicalism now that's coming out that I really support. Like, we need to act without hesitation in terms of, well, what comes next? I, I'm more concerned with getting rid of certain things that I know are a threat than I am with, well, then what do we replace it with? I guess that's where I stand after having seen all that, all the stuff you know, it's just really, I, I just, I, I just didn't feel like after seeing those things that I could even feel it 
I was just like, we just need to get rid of these cops. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's any further thought that I have to that other than they need to go. Like, we can't live under the authority of these people anymore. They've got to be stripped of badge and gun, period. Gone. And I don't know if it's necessarily any of our jobs to uh, justify that beyond to say, look what you look what you've seen. Look what you've seen. That's the justify you provided the justification already. Maybe that's a good know. end to that. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Diana, any final thoughts? <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds good to me. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in real life, I do, I do prefer decisive action versus over no action. You know, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable. I mean, I think radicalism, talking about it, is not a comfortable thing because mm-hmm. a lot of it requires accepting things that don't seem right. You yeah, know? I guess for me, it's not even about them. It's about like their potential for um, retribution. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if they stay racist, they're going to come and attack not the people who have guns and who know how to use them, but like the elderly women and children. And like, you know, there's still more of these white supremacists than there are of us. Like, yeah, but it's still my issue. That's your issue. But that's still saying like, you know, there's still a sort of legitimacy to the police. If we make them illegitimate by taking away the badge, they're going to be even worse. You know, that's that's a blue peril. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. Yeah. So and we've seen what I mean, cop, cops are actually worse than your racist on the street. The racist on the street is often scared to do what the cop does because the cop knows that they're going to get off. Mm, OK, so you're saying if you take away their power, they won't. Yeah, I, I I'd that. rather I'd rather if I was if we were to follow a Huey Newton sort of model of self-defense, I'd rather go up against people that aren't deputized by the state mm-hmm. and just fucking fight the KKK or whatever than fight cops. You can't right. win against cops. They're going to, you know, you're done. I'd right. rather deal with people who aren't deputized, you know. Um, anyway, I mean, uh, like all cops abolish huh? the military and get rid of nukes. I would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That Um, would be the ideal situation. Yeah. It's just um, actually doing it that is hard. I I just, I mean, honestly, I get frustrated where it's like, how many fucking murders and shit do we have to see, like, recorded from multiple angles? We know what's going on. We know that the medical examiner's going to support them, the prosecutor's going to support them in a state, in a city where everyone's a fucking Democrat. Everything, what more do we need to say, see before we get comfortable with the idea that the police need to go? And still, after all of that, after seeing all of that, you know, to still hesitate to me shows like we really fear something uh, underneath if there's the loss of law and order, if there's the loss of the American state, if there's the loss of American power and authority, we are st- scared of what's going to come next. No, I'm scared of white you know? violence. Right. That's so, what, it's so, not the state. I'm scared of like actual like white people and white culture. But what did we? General. But what are we seeing? What isn't that? I mean, you know, you're saying you're scared of white violence, but then you see the cops doing what they did. Isn't that white violence? I mean, aren't we already suffering it? Like, aren't they already suffering it? We are. And I'm saying that it will be worse. Like, I I can see it being much worse than this. Without the cops. Without the white racist cops. Without (laughs) the um, stability that they have now. Without the mental stability. I mean, I... I just imagine like every one of these guys becoming mass shooters. 
I think that that fear is what makes radicalism radical is to not care about that fear, right? Is to say like, I have seen enough. I know what is wrong and we need to fix that. Like we need to get rid of that now. And I have faith that that's the thing. And I'm not, I think the, the, the argument that if we were to uh, uh, get rid of the thing that we want to get rid of because it murders people, uh, it murders black people specifically, if we were to get rid of that, then it will be even worse is a similar thing that justifies uh, American imperialism to say, as bad as it is, if we were to get rid of it, if we were to dismantle uh, American military bases around the world, it would get even worse because then really bad people are going to take take us over, you know, fill well, that no, gap. The, I mean, the argument there is that there's an external enemy and uh, oh, like there's a yellow peril element. And I'm saying like, it's them. It's them themselves that would be worse. Mm-hmm. Does that, like, yeah. I, I think that's different. I mean, but I think you're right in terms of like, at some point you just gotta be like, you know what, even if it's worse, like it's gonna get worse before it gets better and we just need to fucking do something now. And I think there's value to that. Yeah, that that's why I don't actually think I'm a radical person. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the things that real radicals say make me uncomfortable because for exactly for the reasons you say uh, is... I don't know if I could follow someone that deep mm-hmm. uh, into it, but I do know that uh, the 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 sight of a burning police precinct to me felt right. It, it felt to me like that was a valid, yeah. justified expression of the public taking back uh, what it gave to these police to say, yeah. we're just going to take it back. I mean, uh, I saw that o- and I felt relieved. You know, 53% of Americans polled apparently supported it. Mm-hmm. They said that that was a justified action. Oh. And I was shocked by that number. I thought it would be a lot lower. Yeah, and um, it, it, I don't, I feel like the radical, the, the idea of the radical is to say like, look, I will stand behind something like that. I will stand behind a violent action if I think it's justified. And I, and I think that going back earlier to what we were saying is, you know, the black radical movement, I think is often misunderstood to the extent that it's simply a moral movement. You know, I I think a lot of it has is the frustration of it constantly being moralized, Uh, but it can't do anything. It can only make moral points and sue for moral legitimacy, but it can't actually do a goddamn thing without people saying, oh, that's not the real movement. You know, that's not the real, that's not the real values that uh, we stand for. I think radicalism is to say, it's not always about values. It's also about my, my right to take action. But on the um, flip side of that, so on the flip side of, well, we support violence if it's justified. The f- you, you can imagine a situation, though, where uh, the American people see um, violence done on Chinese people or to China as justified because, um, because it's legitimized in the eyes of these people because of like all of these xenophobic stories. But we could always justify violence against Chinese, right? Like we, 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 we have all of the media, we have all the power on our side. I think there's also, it's not, I mean, in that sense, it's not really about who has the better values, but who has more power, right? I think there's a degree to radicalism, which is to say that the person without power has the right to use, also has the right to use force. It's not always like, we, you know, they go low, we go high. 
you know, but it's also sometimes like, you know, we can fight too. And, and I think we sanitize a lot of that stuff. Like for example, like uh, quote tankies on, uh, on Asian tankies on Twitter who, you know, valorize someone like Ho Chi Minh uh, or, or Mao, you know, these people were like guerrilla warfare people. They, they were experts in, 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 in sabotaging and killing. Uh, but when we look back on history, we see like, oh, they were, you know, the underdogs. They didn't have the power on their side. In a way, with time and history, I think a lot of these subversive acts uh, are sanitized and we draw moral lessons from them. But when the same set of material circumstances arises, somehow we, you know, because they were so radical, like I'm not sure we feel quite as comfortable just you know justifying or supporting the same set of actions again like i don't know if we would necessarily burning down a police precinct like that you know compared to what like what ho chi minh was uh, leading was nothing i mean no one got killed in that i guess what i'm saying is like when we say radicalism how radical are we talking about here because i think i've heard some things that are quite radical <laughs> you know like there were black radicals that advocated for uh you know for violent revolution. There were radicals who advocated for violence or, or use of violence and, and arms in self-defense. With time, when we have this much separation between ourselves and the civil rights movement, we can get a little bit comfortable with that. But when the same thing arises now, we are not as comfortable anymore. You know, and I think maybe that's the the trick is is, you know, do we always need to wrap radical movements in a kind of like moral legitimacy or do we just say, man, these people have the right they and to, to take matters into their own hands now, you know, and, and just let the chips were, were fall where they may. That's to be a very radical position. So I think when we say, I guess what I'm saying is when we say black radicalism, how radical do we really mean? I think that's a valid question is, is, you know, because there's a spectrum. And if you listen to the stuff that Kwame Ture says, you can understand why white people got uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And they prefer to John Lewis or whatever. And I can see why black radicals today were upset about what Clinton said. And I think we're getting to a level of division in America where we are looking at something along these lines. We're talking about a movement that wants to get violent. The notion that that isn't what the movement is really about and that we need to correct for that or whatever is a sort of anti-radicalism almost, right? Is um, the notion that it should remain a moral movement. It should remain a movement of reform and redemption, uh, you know, versus a real violent, potentially violent challenge uh, to existing power structures. Because that is how power sees it. Power doesn't see this as a moral challenge. They don't give a fuck. They will send in the F, the unlabeled federal agents and van you. They'll throw you in a van or they'll shoot you in the face with a gas can. They don't give a shit. You have this on television. I don't give a shit. I I don't. It's to me, it's not a moral threat. To me, this is a material threat. You know, me being of the establishment. So I'm going to suppress it violently. So the real threat here is this movement coalesces into a movement of force. Uh, but if the movement wants to revert to being about giving speeches in the public square and demanding that white people prostrate themselves and come to Jesus um, and write books about how to be anti-racist, uh, then then we can put that on television. Then we can publicize that, right? But so long as 
you are occupying space, so long as you're threatening labor strikes, so long as you're threatening property damage, we're going to we're going to send the jackboots out, you know. So I guess what I'm saying is that we're in a point now in time where the same questions of radicalism that presented itself in the 60s have reappeared and I'm not sure we're quite comfortable with the ramifications of that in terms of are we supportive of a movement that has violent characteristics that uses force and chaos and social unrest uh, as as tools, you know, for its well, goals. It it wasn't really that violent in the U.S., you know, but the threat of violence that itself um, forced the white establishment to actually take the nonviolent, um, moral. Um, more morally focused uh, movement more seriously because they preferred, they still preferred that over the violent uh, movement. So I think that's very useful. Just like even the threat of that is um, it, it will, it will do more than any kind of moralizing movement. Um, but also like, I think part of it is that material conditions for everyone have just improved you know, since that time. So people aren't willing as much to um, commit to a more violent revolution because they don't want to lose the material comforts that they have in their lives. Like, I think that conditions, like like standard of living is going to have to get much worse for a large number of people before most people will be willing to commit to that. And I think it might happen, you know, relatively quickly, what with um, the rent freezes, or sorry, the eviction freezes, you know, um, lifting <laughs> pretty mm-hmm. soon. Um, but I, I do think that we're not at that point yet. I, maybe not, but I, I think that America was taken, the, 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 the establishment was taken by surprise at how big the movements were, how, f- how violent they got. And I, you know, here's my point is, I think that there was in, and I would consider this a liberal discourse is the denial that these movements were violent or potentially violent is to say that, oh, no, no, that's not the real movement. Oh, there were outside agents and forces that came in to try and co-opt the movement through violence or, yeah, you know, there's these people that weren't really about the movement that came in. They just wanted to destroy property. Like that to me is a liberal discourse to say, we want to take the fangs off of this thing and it's a it's a moral it, this, this thing is a thing of moral beauty and anyone who wants to take actual use any sort of means of force is not really about the movement they're a corruption of the movement and i think that that process is liberal discourse in the sense of they're constantly defanging radical movements radical movements are never allowed to take on elements of force because they're illegitimate, fundamentally illegitimate. At the end of the day, we're still comfortable with the idea that only police are allowed to monopolize force. They're the only ones that can use force. Even if they're racist, they're the ones that get to use force, right? So when we uh, look at it currently, I think we can kind of see how maybe it is uncomfortable to support um, a movement, a radical movement that wants to use violence. But when we look back in time, uh, to the 60s, and we have a little bit of of distance. Both Asian decolonized, you know, Asian independence movements and Black radical movements used force, and nonviolent protest was a means of using force. It was a, it was a means of provoking violence. 
by the cops, right? It wasn't peaceful protest was not about keeping the peace. Peaceful protest was about destroying the peace, demonstrating that the state was going to use violence against this. That's how much of a threat it was. So I guess is is now is like when we talk about radicalism, I think we can't avoid the uh, discussion of violence and the use of it. And that's that's get very uncomfortable, I think, for Americans because, you know, we've gotten so accustomed to state violence, to police violence, that I think we're rightfully in a position where we say, I just don't want to see any more violence at all from cops or protesters. I just want peace. But I think, again, that's a neutral position. And, 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 and when we're neutral about that, we're siding with the side, we're siding with the cops because they have a monopoly on violence. They will continue to use violence. We know that. If we're neutral about it, the cops will continue to use violence. We knew that Kenosha was going to happen. We knew that Jacob Blake was going to happen. We don't know who. We didn't know where. We knew when, which is pretty soon. But we knew Jacob Blake. We knew that that kind of event would happen again. And we know it's going to happen again, so long as cops exist, right? So that, I think, is where, for me, when we, when we want, as Asian Americans, want to use terms like black radicalism or radicalism in general in America, that we do have to get ourselves a little bit straight on the role that violence plays in this and not just see black radicals as a moral force, but as a actual like disruptive force to, you know, just to our regular way of life. That's what I guess, I guess that's what I'm a little bit worried about the discussion around black radicals simply as writers who put forth great moral arguments. I think it's more than that. From what I've seen, the frustration by a lot of black radicals is for both outsiders and what they would consider non-radicals, liberal forces, uh, trying to strip the radical movement from any access to violent means or forceful means. And uh, does that make sense? I guess that's what I've been grappling with in terms of ever since I've we've talked about black radicalism and and here like we've talked we've thought about it ourselves is it it really has gotten to the point in America now where I don't know how comfortable people are really going to be with the uh, real the the reality of it I, that's where I stand with it I guess I'm still trying to grapple with these notions that I could see people burning a police precinct down and feel like that was a good thing. I never thought I'd see it that way, but I did. And apparently the majority of Americans did as well. The implications of that are pretty severe, I think. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for like another five hours. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have limited time, but I, I, I uh, sorry, I took up again. We ended up having the same discussion about black radicalism and uh, spent a lot of time in the deep end of the pool. But it's such, it's so fascinating. I'm so glad you brought it up because it's, it's not an easy topic. I think, uh, you know, should we end it there for real this time? Two hours, forty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Uh, yeah. Thanks for. T- I mean, if you, if listeners have like follow, I've, people apparently like long conversations. Then they've said in the past, don't edit it down. Just put the whole thing out there. So if you've made it this far, I guess it's really, I'm, I really, we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. See ya.